Hello and welcome to Paul's Podcast Diary for Saturday the 12th of November 2022. And coming up in this special one-off episode, I'll be bringing you up to date with everything that's been happening in my writing life since I last dropped an episode in January of this year. Can you believe it's been that long? I'll let you know all about the quality control work I've been doing to level up my books before moving on to something new. I'll be talking about my new trilogy and revealing my writing plans for the immediate future. And... If you make it to the end of this podcast, I'll bring you right up to date with current earnings and let you know how much a mediocre mid-weight author is earning at the moment. Now, I'm recording this episode because I've been inspired by my enjoyment of Jerry Evanoff and Rich Case's episodes and updates on the new author podcast every week. Also, uh, John Cronshaw continues to give his weekly author updates. And it was clinched finally by my joy at the Six Figure Authors podcast, releasing a bonus episode and hearing that Joe Lalo is going back to work. I just thought all these uh, updates are so uh, interesting. It's so good to hear what people are up to that I should probably drop an update about what I'm up to so that you know uh, what I'm doing right at the moment because a lot of time has passed since that last episode that I dropped in January of 2022. So just to let you know, this is a one-time update. I don't currently have any plans to bring back the uh, podcast on a weekly basis, but I would be lying if I said to you that I hadn't considered it. So what I would suggest you do is to keep the feed active as I'm pretty certain that you'll get at least these occasional blockbuster episodes, but... uh, there might be a day when I feel like I've uh, got my flow back again with the writing. I might just bring it back on a weekly basis, but I'm not promising anything with that. So you can boil this episode down to some big headlines. They are quality control, marketing, learning, reflection, and dithering. So let's make a start then. First of all, I want to talk to you about the quality control work that I did. So when I left you last in January of 2022, I had just published my uh, final trilogy in the Morecambe Bay series and the box set had been published. So that was all done and dusted and it was just a case of marketing that and getting on with things. And the last thing I said to you is that I was working on um, a science fiction series of books. That's where you left me. So that's kind of, that's where the last episode stopped. I'll bring you right up to date with that. Now, first of all, Uh, I did say to you that I wanted to get some quality control work done. I felt very much when I'd finished the Walker Bay series that I was uh, at a good uh, resting place and I wasn't really quite sure what to do next, which is why I was going for science fiction as a palate cleanser. But what I did know that I wanted to do with, I think it's 40 books published. I do do lose count, but I think it's 40 books I've got published uh, right now. I did want to go right through everything sort out the the quality, make sure everything was harmonised, everything was consistent before I moved on or while I was moving on. But it just felt to me like a good uh, point to draw a line in the sand, uh, to go back to everything I'd done, to just bring it up to a certain uh, quality threshold and then to move on from there. Because what I didn't want to do is end up with loads of jobs that needed doing, you know, to be writing new books and then really to be chasing my tail all of the time. So I recorded in a huge spreadsheet my quality control checks that I wanted to do. I've got the spreadsheet here and all those quality control checks have now been done. And I'll just give you, I'll give you the list of of what I did. This is what I checked. If you think of all the books that I've got, so on my spreadsheet, on the left-hand column, I've got every book that I've written that's published at the moment. And then on the, the top column, these are all the things that I checked. So I've got, I've ticked off everything as I've gone along where it was applicable. 
So I've made sure that uh, the copyright was registered for all of the eBooks and the paperbacks. So uh, I got a piece of software that allows me to register the copyright. Now I said to you, I did mention this in the last episode. It's a copyright software. It's a UK based copyright software. All it allows me to do is to list the books uh, and it produces a certificate. Now I don't think that's probably going to be much use at all if I ever get the dreaded knock on the door from Amazon saying, can you prove that you produce these books? But I decided to do it anyway, just so I'd got, a, you know, a, a line, again, a line in the sand, a record of uh, me registering copyright. Now, I've done this with uh, a website called copyrighthouse.org. It uh, cost me a one-time fee. I can put all my books in there and it means I can generate a certificate for any book that I've got if Amazon asks me for one. Though since I did that, something has occurred to me. Um, another thing I told you last time that I did the podcast is that I'd sent all my paperbacks off to the British Library uh, because that's one of the things that we have to do in the UK. We have to make sure they've got a copy of all of our paperbacks. And I, I'd done it, I think, with The Secret Bunker years ago and then I, I just really not got round to it. So I went through the lot got a copy of every single paperback I'd done and I've sent it to the British Library. And what's happened since I recorded that last episode is the British Library sent me a formal acknowledgement that they've received those books. So what has occurred to me in the meantime is that if I had to prove copyright to Amazon or to anybody else, those certificates, those notices of receipt from the British Library, I'm thinking would probably be a bit more authoritative than the certificates I get from Copyright House. But if you're on the Facebook uh, groups, you'll see this happening quite a lot where people say, oh my goodness, I've been slapped by Amazon. Uh, they want me to prove copyright of my books. And I don't really know how to do it. And uh, so in case I ever get in that situation, I just wanted to take a few uh, steps to make sure that that didn't happen. So I've, I've done that with every book uh, that I can do. I've either, I've, I've either got the certificates from the British Library as they've registered my books there, or I've got those copyright certificates. And really that's the best I, I know to do. Uh, the other thing I did is I've got, I created, uh, all of my books are in uh, vellum, but with uh, the exception of a couple of very old non-fiction ones I decided just to publish. Now they were originally done, they've got images in them, and they were originally produced in Word many years ago. So with the exception of those, every book that has been produced in vellum, I made new 2022 vellum files because I'd got a bit mixed up with the vellum files and I just wanted to make sure that I had a vellum file for each book, a brand new vellum file for each book that was definitely up to date and reflected the latest version of that book. And into those vellum files, I put new also buys. So also buys are where you list the other books that you've written in that genre. I made sure that my copyright pages were all up to date. I updated my about the author pages I wanted to check and update every internal web link that I'd put in my books. Now, something I learned fairly early on was not to put too many web links in books, but particularly in my non-fiction books, I've used uh, redirects on a single domain name now. So I've basically decided to just put all my writings through the domain name paulteague.net. 
And I had some old domains where I'd done nonfiction, um, where I'd, I'd put web links to resources pages and redirect links that had used uh, an old domain name. And what I just decided was I just want to reduce massively the number of domain names I have. I just want to use one domain name for my writing. So I'd altered all of those web links in any of the books, wherever I needed to alter them, I'd altered them to the domain name paulteague.net with a redirection on them. And what that means, it just makes it much, much simpler, simpler for me to uh, to update things in future. That's why I wanted to, to do that. I also inserted a leave a review page. Now, uh, normally what I'd done is I'd, I'd put that within the about the author notes, sorry, the, not the about the author notes. I'd usually put the request for a review uh, within the uh, author notes that I put at the end of books because it's conversational and chatty. But I've actually put leave review pages now uh, into, into my books. And I think it was from memory, I think it was Dave Chesson who sort of gave the, the URL formula for taking you to a review page, because I think that's why I hadn't sort of really pushed it in, in the past, because I wasn't really sure where to send people to for the review page. But Dave Chesson had done the formula for that. And that's what I've put in my review pages. So all of these pages are going into these new Vellum updated files for 2022. I also checked the thumbnails of my books. So uh, particularly, I think it was on um, Ingram Spark. Uh, some of the the covers didn't quite look right, so I just made sure that all my all my thumbnails were displaying correctly. In one or two cases, they just weren't, just because of the images that I'd uploaded. So again, that's just a quality control thing. I made sure that there was a call to action in every ebook and paperback. Uh, I checked every single Amazon listing for spelling mistakes, for formatting, to make sure that they were up to date, to make any changes that I wanted to. I went through all of my author notes to make sure that they were still up to date, to change the web links and all of that. I've done some huge pricing work. So I've got a completely separate spreadsheet where I've basically, I just wanted to have a, a proper pricing strategy. So I created a strategy, you know, for each genre and then decided what each ebook and which paperback would cost. And with the thrillers, I based that on whether they were one of my 50K standalone books, whether they were one of my 75K books, or whether they were one of my 90K books. And I also decided what my pricing structure and strategy was going to be for each of the box sets, because I've got box sets with three books in them, nine books in them, and six books in them. And clearly, you've got to have a price progression that makes sense. So I've got a whole new spreadsheet, which has my Amazon pricing, my Google pricing, my draft the digital pricing, my Kobo pricing and my publish drive pricing. And let me tell you that going through the pricing on all of those sites to make sure it's consistent in all of the territories is a complete pain in the butt. It really takes a long time and it's the kind of clerical work that I don't respond very well to. But I, I grimaced and got through it and all the pricing uh, is now consistent. Also, I went through my publish drive pricing where I've got books uh, on publish drive. I don't do a lot of business through publish drive, but it does give me access to a couple of territories that all the other uh, listing sites don't give me. So I do still list on publish drive as well. So after that, I went through the listings on, and it's a lot of work here, I tell you. I went through the listings on Google, on Draft the Digital, on Kobo. Uh, and publish drive. So I made sure all those other listings other than Amazon were also okay. Now, when you look at that as a spreadsheet, it's a great big long spreadsheet with a combination of ticks in them and uh, NAs, not applicables, depending on, on where we are with that. So there was a lot of work in there. So when you, when you hear me 
tell you about the writing that I've been doing this year. What I want to say to you is that I have constantly, there has not been a day gone by virtually when I haven't been working on my writing business. And I can tell you that this quality control work took me a lot of time. I'm really pleased I've done it, but it took me a lot of time and it formed the bulk of what I was doing in the first quarter of the year. So don't judge me too harshly when I tell you how little writing I've done this year. The other thing that I wanted to do was to go through all of my Ingram Spark books because I'd created new vellum files and updated the, the paperback versions. Obviously, when you have paperbacks in Amazon, you could upload those and, and do those straight away. But when you update a book file in Ingram Spark, you've got to pay for it and it's pretty expensive. So this is one of the reasons why I recommend being a member of the Alliance of Independent Authors. You know, not only because I think as a self-published author, we've kind of got to be a member of the Alliance of Independent Authors because they represent our interests. Uh, their podcasts are brilliant. Uh, I love all their podcasts. The, um, they have the sort of one for beginners and they have the more advanced ones that uh, Orna and Joanna Penn do. For, for more advanced writers. And I, I listen to, to all of them. I get a lot of value from all of them. And, you know, whatever uh, level you're at, when you listen to those podcasts, there's always somebody mentioning a resource you didn't know about or maybe a bit of news that you weren't aware of. So I get a lot of value from the Alliance of Independent Authors. And I continue to be a member. But, but to me, the kind of no-brainer element of that is that when you are a member of the Alliance of Independent Authors, every month you get f you get a code which gives you five free listings or updates with Ingram Spark. Now, I've got a list here uh, every month from March 2022 through to September 2022. I have been updating five of my books, and I've set a little note in my diary so that on the first of every month, when that Ingram Spark free code uh, updates in the Alliance of Independent Authors, I've uploaded another three of my books. Now that they would have cost me, I think it's $25 per refresh, $125 a month over six or seven months. I mean, that's a lot of money. So basically I've been very patient. There was nothing wrong hugely with the old files. It was more a case of I wanted to put the updated files into my Ingram Spark paperbacks. So every month from March, when those that new code has arrived uh, as part of my membership in the Alliance of Independent Authors. I've listed uh, five books, waited another month, done another five books. And in September, the last five, uh, three books, I beg your pardon, were listed. That was So Many Lies, Circle of Lies, and uh, Bound by Blood. Those were the three books. And then I've now got all of my Ingram Spark versions of the paperbacks updated. And thanks to my membership of the Alliance of Independent Authors, that didn't cost me a penny. It would have cost me a lot of money if I'd had to pay for those one by one. And the other thing I've just reviewed as well, of course, is that my books are all in the right categories, categories as well. And uh, just as a reminder, or if you're new to this podcast, the resource that I recommend that you use to A, work out what categories your books are in already, and then B, work out which categories they need to be in, I recommend BK Link, uh, B -K -L -N -K, BK Link, uh, dot com. Uh, that's the website that I use to do that, uh, and it allows you to do that. You usually in the UK. Sometimes he he, he loses his access to the UK because he's not had enough. I think it's affiliate uh, sales or something that he needs to to get the access. I'm not sure what it is, uh, but uh, you you get the states obviously, which is an important one, and I think there's Canada in there too. But I, I use BK Link to get my categories. So. There's been a lot of work going on. The, the bulk of that work going on from January to March, all that spreadsheet work, uh, but also 
the work that I did in Ingram Spark, Ingram Spark, that work has been going on through the year, each month, as I get those codes for Ingram Spark. So, as I say, before I uh, tell you what writing I've been doing this year, you can see that's a massive amount of work. A lot of it was clerical. And those of you who listen to this podcast regularly will know I don't really like clerical work. It, it bores me senseless. I usually have to have some music on or something like that while I'm doing it. But I, I did grin and bear it. And all that work was done. And it was pretty well finished uh, by March. And at that point, I sort of felt, right, fine, I'm now ready to move on. I've harmonized my system. I've harmonized what I put in the books. Um, you know, everything is brought up to date now. Uh, I future-proofed everything in terms of the web link redirections that I use. And I was then at that point happy to start, start working and publishing um, book 41 and, and moving on from that point. This podcast is supported by affiliate sales of memberships to the Alliance of Independent Authors, the professional business membership organization for self-published authors. I found that I usually cover the cost of membership by using the special codes given out for free listings and revisions on Ingram Spark. Use a couple of those over the course of a year and your membership is easily paid for. However, Ally is much more than that. You can access expert advice, great support and community, a range of podcasts suitable for authors of all levels, and the amazing online conferences which gather industry titans several times a year in order to share their best tips and tricks. When you purchase your Ally membership through my affiliate link, you pay the same price as normal, but I take a percentage of the sale proceeds, which goes to support my time and effort in producing this podcast. To check out the best essential professional membership service for all indie authors, head over to paulteague.net forward slash ally. That's A-L-L-I. All of this year clearly has been dominated by marketing. We never stop marketing. We never should stop marketing as authors. And now I've got this mass of, of 40 books and particularly in my thrillers and sci-fi, everything's packaged beautifully now for BookBub promos and for promos on Amazon. So as a thriller writer, I've got a, a, a series now. So I've got a series which is made up of three trilogies. It's a nine-part series. I've got a six-pack of books which have the trilogies one and two in them. And as I say, a, a nine-pack trilogy with all of the, uh, I beg your pardon, nine-pack box set with the three trilogies in there. Um, but obviously I've got lots of permutations with my Morecambe Bay series now. And that, that sells very well. Uh, you'll remember, incidentally, I'll talk to you about editing in a moment or two, but you'll remember that um, I was unable to use my my regular uh, editor. So I, I edited those books myself with the help of my beta readers. It's been interesting that I haven't actually had any kind of complaints about the editing or the spelling or anything like that in, in any of the reviews. Those last three books have been reviewed uh, generally well. So uh, thank goodness for that is all I can say because uh, I wouldn't normally have done that. I won't be doing that in future. It was only for that one particular project, but I seem to, Touchwood, have got away with that so far. But uh, as well as doing that quality control work, I have obviously been marketing throughout the year. And what I can say to you is that pretty well up to, I'm just trying to think, what month are we in now? November, probably up to about August or September. Pretty well up to then, I was doing Facebook ads. And I have done some, you know, my usual Amazon ads where I, I, I put a fiver on an auto-targeting ad and hope for the best. And then I'd also done some BookBub ads, which I'll talk to you about in detail in a moment or two ago. And these are the BookBub ads. These are not featured deals. These are the BookBub ads 
that you kind of pay for on there. They're like display ads, they're like Google ads. It's that kind of bookbub ad. But let me talk to you about Facebook first. I can tell you that in spite of all that's been written about Facebook ads and the fact that, you know, Apple have done some jiggery pokery that makes them less uh, effective on Apple, that Facebook, Facebook ads are still quite simply the ads that are working best for me. And I'm advertising in the main territories for me, which are the UK, the US, Canada, and Australia. So I've been spending consistently on Facebook ads and they've consistently been bringing me in sales. And even more interestingly, that 12 pack of books, which was responsible for that, whatever it was, 16,000 pound month that I had uh, during COVID, uh, that, that I'm still running those adverts and they're still performing for me. There's no point in me switching them off all the time they're making profit for me. So, so Facebook ads at the time of recording this re remain my, my number one source of sales for my books. I'm still very happy with Amazon ads. Now, um, Amazon ads, as, as you know, I've um, sort of struggled with those. Uh, I've never really had much success. Uh, I mean, the funny thing is, is that usually when I have a non-fiction book and I put it on auto-targeting, I've usually made, uh, well, certainly by the numbers on the screen, those have always been profitable. I've done nothing intelligent about those at all. I've just let them run. And they usually run at a profit, the non-fiction ads. But I've been entirely entirely unable to replicate that with the um, with the fiction books. But this year, I've invested in some learning with Amazon ads. Now, I've, I've done all the usual Amazon ads, and I'm not going to call them out by name, but you know all the, you'll have done them yourself, I bet. You'll have done all the usual Amazon ad courses and read all the usual Amazon ad books, and uh, none of them have really done the work for me. And, and to be fair, a lot of that's my fault, because I just, my eyes just glaze over. People start talking about, you know, all these percentages and these numbers and things. My eyes glaze over. And I can't find the will to live most of the time. You know, no one's succeeded in explaining Amazon ads to me in a way that I find comprehensible or, or even you know, motivating, frankly. So um, I have invested, though, in some learning, and I'm very happy with the results of this. And this is another one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast update, because I, I feel I've got some new things, some new tricks, and I want to share them. And it feels unnatural not to share things uh, that are working or look very promising to me. So because I haven't had this outlet, I'm dying to share these these things that I've discovered. So I thought, you know, a one-off episode would be a good way of doing that. Now, I've probably mentioned this gentleman before, a guy called Nicholas Eric. Nicholas spelt in the usual way, but Eric spelt E-R-I-K. And I've been following uh, Nicholas's work for a long time. He sends out some great uh, emails. There's not a lot of emails these days that I read from top to bottom, but Nicholas Eric's emails are excellent. And he sends out marketing tips for Facebook, Amazon, BookBub ads. You know, I really, I really kind of rate his marketing stuff. I've paid for a couple of webinars of his. I, I really, um, you know what it's like. You listen to a lot of voices in this industry, and then you fairly quickly boil it down to the people that you take notice of, that the people who speak in a way that you understand and that you can work with. Nicholas Eric is one of those people who, who sort of speaks my marketing language. And so I paid for his six-figure masterclass this year. And uh, I've been working through that and making notes about that and actioning that in my own marketing. But I think the big discovery was a, a chap called Matthew Holmes, who runs the Amazon Ads Academy. And I cannot for the life of me remember 
where I found out about this. I think it might have been uh, reading one of Kirsten Oliphant's posts on the creative writing um, sort of uh, Facebook page. I, I think that's where I saw it, but I may be incorrect with that. And I just, like I do all the time, if somebody recommends a resource and says it's working for them, I, I always check it out. And some I take and leave, others I jump on. Well, I looked at what uh, Matthew Holmes was doing and I, uh, I can't remember, did he do a free video? Something like that. Maybe I signed up for the emails, but I was straight in there. It was just a fairly cheap course. It was just a, a, a basic class for Amazon ads. And I worked through that series of videos. And you know what? I've, I've never seen anything that was so uh, methodical, organized and easy to understand. So, you know, I've been like you, I, I bet, you know, trying with Amazon ads for ages and I've struggled with them. I can't really make them work and it's all guesswork and uh, I'm just bamboozled by when people talk to me about statistics and things like that. It's just too much for me. It's, it's you know, it's almost more than I can bear to work through all of that stuff or even make sense of. And then when I discovered uh, Matthew Holmes and the Amazon Ads Academy, I just worked straight through it. It was about uh, 15 videos, the basic course, and I loved it. And it was so methodical, the way that he sets up the, the adverts, the way that he labels them, the whole sort of philosophy that you set these ads up. He tells you, he tells you exactly, you know, how much to spend, how much to bid. He tells you absolutely everything, chapter and verse, and shows you it on the screen. And all of it makes complete sense to me with my sort of limited, uh, you know, knowledge of marketing. Everything he's doing is speaking my language. So. I did the, I think I, I need to make sure I get these courses the right way around. I think the course that I did, the shorter course is Jumpstart Amazon Ads. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I'm sure that's the, I'm sure that's the shortest one. And then you've also got the, uh, another course, which I bought, which is the more expensive course, which is the Amazon Ads Academy. And I hope I'm getting those the right way around. Let me just check. I'm looking at the screen here. Uh, I think I'm getting them the right, right way around. But let me just give you a sort of taster of what you do in these. And you'll just get a sense for, um, just you know, how methodical uh, it is when you do it. So um, if I just go into the ads themselves, the, the, the videos are, are, are titled like this. So setting up portfolios and budget caps, understanding bidding strategies, understanding keyword match types, uh, Amazon ads keyword research, Amazon ads ASIN research, launching your automatic targeting campaign, launching your category targeting campaigns, launching your author targeting campaigns, launching your ASIN targeting campaigns, launching your search term targeting campaigns, launching your performance keyword campaigns and launching your performance ASIN campaigns. So bit by bit by bit by bit, he shows you step by step exactly how to set up each of those campaigns, what budget to set. Uh, and there's no guesswork in there. You know, there's no there's no uh, overwhelming science. I just literally went through the whole thing. And, and what I did is I actually, this took a lot of time too. So as I say, when I tell you about the writing I've done this, you can see where I've spent my time. I've been spending it on behind the scenes work rather than writing this year. But it took an awful amount of work. And I actually went through uh, amazon.co.uk, amazon.com, 
I think I also did them for Canada and Australia. I'm just going to check. I forgot now. I think I might have set them up for all of the main channels, Canada and Australia. I'll just check and log in while I'm chatting to you. But I have a feeling I did. Crikey, that was a lot of work. Because you're setting up a lot of campaigns and a lot of portfolios. Yeah, I did. I've just checked uh, Just checked in my Amazon account now. So, you know, you set up portfolios. So, for instance, if I look at my... If I look at my Australia campaign here, um, I've got uh, eight different portfolios, um, Left for Dead Discovery, Left for Dead Brand, Don't Tell Meg Discovery, Don't Tell Meg Brand, My Action Thrillers Discovery, My Action Thrillers Brand, My Female, my female Protagonists Discovery and Female Discovery Brand Ads. And then with each, in each of those portfolios, I've got about three adverts. So that's what, about 24 adverts, um, 25 adverts in that collection. And I've done that for the UK and I've done it for Canada and I've done it for um, the US as well. So I've gone right through that. Now, what I quickly found was that it, with the Amazon ads, I was spending a heck of a lot of money. So what I've, what I've since done is I've turned the ads off uh, for all the other uh, campaigns in .com, uh, Australia and Canada, so that I could focus on, on learning this strategy uh, in the UK. And then when I've got the hang of it in the UK, I'll switch all those ads on and start, you know, working through and, um, you know, finessing the ads and making sure I'm not wasting my money. But what I realized very quickly is that if I had all those campaigns turned on, I was very quickly going to be overwhelmed and I just couldn't cope with it. And also uh, there was additional learning that I then needed to go through. Having bought that sort of fast start course, I needed to go work through all the videos explaining how you check your ads, how you can... Uh, sort of change the the settings on those adverts to make sure that you're making money, which ones to switch on, which ones to switch off, all the kind of intelligent stuff on that. So um, at the moment, my UK ads have been running. I have some ads there that are quite clearly uh, making profit, and I've I've added the um, I've added money to those. But I need to come back to those ads now, and I need to work through the second part of Matt's course in the Amazon Ads Academy and learn how to. Uh, you know, learn how to manage those. Now, interestingly, as soon as I found Matt's course and I worked through the starting videos, I contacted him because he he also sells his services as an ad manager, and I was just going to buy him in. I was just literally, I just quite happy to pay him whatever I needed to pay him a month and say handle my Amazon ads. That's how much I uh, I valued his uh, his integrity and his uh, you know his knowledge and what he was doing that I was quite happy to say, here's so much money per month, just manage my accounts for me. And frankly, I would rather have, have done that than me having to do it myself. That's really what I was hoping to do when I did the course. Unfortunately, he's kind of chock-a-block, as he would be, because he's very good at this sort of stuff. He's chock-a-block. He couldn't take me on, which was very sad on my part. He did recommend somebody else to me, but I don't want to work with somebody else. I want to work with him. So I'm kind of holding out and hoping that he might have a slot or two available at some point. But in the meantime, I'm having to work through them. But I would quite happily pay him a monthly fee to manage those ads and to learn from him as he's, as he's going through those ads. So I really want you to check out Matthew Joe Holmes' uh, Amazon Ads Academy. And even if you decide not to, to look at the Academy, then uh, what I really urge you to do is to sign up for his list. Because the other thing is, his emails. Uh, a lot, I, I thought um, Nicholas Eriks were the best sort of marketing emails I was getting, but he's been trumped now by Matthew Holmes's emails. The emails are just literally like brilliant. They've got so much good information in them for free that I've got, I save them up every day in a separate section in my emails. 
and I, I honestly haven't had the time to go through them and to digest them obviously I skim them every day but I've just put them aside so that when I've got time I need to work through them they are absolutely packed with great information for free so please promise me even if you completely ignore what I'm telling you about Amazon Ads Academy if you completely ignore that that's fine that's up to you please make sure you at least get his emails because you'll you'll learn as much from those emails they're absolutely brilliant and they're free of course um, and you just need to go to the site um, to do that and I'll drop a, a proper advert in for the Amazon Ads Academy during this podcast so that you can get the details and I've got a referral link for that as you'd expect me to have is it something that I use and recommend and the other thing that Matthew did is he surveyed people a couple of weeks ago and found out that actually everybody wants to know not only about Amazon ads but Facebook ads too so I've also just bought another course on Facebook ads now as I told you right at the beginning of this marketing section I'm, quite, I'm, I'm happy with my marketing ads on Facebook they're still performing well for me but that doesn't mean that never means just because something's going well that doesn't mean it can't go a lot better and that doesn't mean there's a lot of tricks that I still don't know so I, I just I didn't even look at it I just bought it I just bought his Facebook ads course and that's waiting for me to start uh, working through to improve my to improve my marketing now it's very interesting because I um, as a result of going to the self-publishing formula live in London which I'll talk to you about in a separate section one of the things that I wanted to do was to change the also boards in Amazon so I wasn't really happy with my also boards they were generally made up of people who they weren't they weren't big enough for me I wanted to target some authors who were much bigger than me because I wanted strategically I, I want when they're when their publishers or their agents you know click on their pages I wanted them to see my books for starters so there was that there was that strategy but also because Amazon uh, when Amazon you know sees you uh, sees people buying books from me and from other authors who are bigger than me I stand more chance of being sent on automatic mail out saying you know if you enjoyed this book you might enjoy that book so I wanted to pay some attention to my also boards now I started doing that with book ads and I, I just literally, uh, I was happy to write the money off. Uh, I've done a lot of writing money off, actually. I'm, I've been when I come to you in the money section, I'll talk to you a little bit more about this. But I, I have, for the past couple of months, not worried about the amount of money I've been making. I've just been spending it all on ads for the last couple of months because I, I need to sort Amazon ads out. And if I'm running at a loss. Uh, well I'm not running I'm never running at a loss actually but I'm not running at a loss but I'm not making a profit from the Amazon ads the profit from the Facebook ads is subsidizing the losses from the Amazon ads some of those Amazon ads are making profit but some of them are making loss while I learn about them I've just accepted that I have to write off a certain amount of money to learn these processes properly and I'm, I'm prepared to do that at this moment in time and I've done the same with bookbub ads what I did with bookbub ads strategically was I I, I targeted specific authors that I wanted to appear in my also boards. So um, I targeted Joy Ellis, who is a very successful author with Joffa Books. Uh, uh, and she writes the same kind of kind of stuff that I do uh, her readers would probably be my readers too Rachel McLean who uh, appeared at the SPF live conference in June I'll talk to you more about Rachel in part of that section LJ Ross as well who you'll know as a self-publishing superstar and they're all writing uh, you know sort of police police 
based or they've got police uh, in them. There's not not procedurals. Um, they're sort of quite relationship sort of driven books as well. Um, they're sort of targeting the same sort of audience. I am a maturer um, audience. And so I wanted them to appear on my also board. And so it's part of my first strategy with that. I targeted my book bub ads specifically at those authors. So the aim of that was that I would target, say, LJ Ross's um, audience um, on uh, on Amazon. I'd use her as my target author and uh, sell my books to uh, her her readers. And so that the aim was is that if I sold enough of those books, then those authors would uh, appear in the also boards, and, and and that would sort of solve my problem. Now, I did that, and uh, I did have a limited success with that. So, you know, you, you burn quite a lot of money with BookBub ads. I did have limited success with that. But what I did find out is because I've used the same strategy for targeting authors in my Amazon ads, I've actually found out that my Amazon ads have worked better than using the BookBub ads. Um, so um, I, I, I am actually now seeing uh, Joy Ellis in my also boards. LJ Ross popped up and then disappeared in my also boards. But I've actually found that the Amazon ad strategy has worked better than the BookBub ads. But I would still actually have BookBub ads running um, to do that. But I, I did very much want to try and control those also boards because of what I learned from Rachel McLean at the SPF live conference, which I'll talk to you about in a bit more detail later. So, uh, bookbubs have continued to uh, be the gift that keeps on giving. You know, I know a lot of people say, oh, bookbubs don't, don't really uh, work very well, but they, they've always uh, made profit for me. L less profit, to be fair, than they used to, but they've always been profitable for me. And I've always, you know, had a couple of months of, of benefits when I've had a, a, a bookbub ad. So I'm quite happy to keep pushing for bookbub ads. Again, if you've listened to this podcast, if you listen to the last couple of episodes, I'm using a spreadsheet now. Uh, if I remember correctly, I think I got that spreadsheet via Nicholas Eric, though I don't know if he was the one who produced it. I'm sure I got it through one of his marketing emails or something like that. But basically, it's a dated kind of calendar spreadsheet, which tells you... You, you, you list every time you list a book on BookBub, it tells you the date you listed it. It automatically generates the day, the date on which you could resubmit it. And it tells you which book is next in the sausage factory to submit next. So I've constantly, since I last spoke to you on this podcast, every single moment that I can, I've had a BookBub submitted. To be fair, I've probably forgotten about one of the BookBubs, but there's one specifically I want to tell you about. I got a BookBub on my Sci-Fi 7-pack in July. Um, and I've, I did it as a 99 pence promo and took a deep breath with it, expecting to make a link. Now, just to remind you, my science fiction is listed wide, and that's how I'm going to leave it. It'll be listed wide now, uh, because I, I don't really sell a huge amount of science fiction. Uh, it, it sort of chugs it chugs along, and if I get a book bub, I do very well with it. But but it just brings in a sort of steady income, but not a, not a high income. My thrillers are definitely the earners, as far as income is concerned. So, you know, I'm quite happy to have them there. They don't know to do any harm. Um, I seem to sell, well, as you know, I, you know, the secret bunker the actual physical location they bought a load of books from me um, they, uh, they they always do through the season I'm quite happy with my science fiction chugs along quietly but I don't I don't make a fortune from my science fiction however this uh, bookbub promo worked very well so it was a wide promo on a seven pack of books now because I didn't really have anywhere else for people to go other than the three science fiction books that I co-authored with John and James Evans 
I decided that rather than give that away free, because there was no real benefit for me to give it away for free, I couldn't get page reads from it because it wasn't listed in KDP uh, Select. So I took a deep breath and did a 99 pence book bub promo, which I've not done before. And I made money on it, which I'm very, very pleasantly surprised at. So I think the only reason I made money on it, I don't think I would ever risk putting a single book in at 99p. I don't think I'd get my money back on that. But because it was a seven pack, you know, the value was huge. I did sell a lot of um, 99p. I made a lot of 99 pence sales, which is great. It got me to number one in the top paid Apple books and um, number 12 in sci-fi and fantasy. And I've got some lovely screenshots. If you look on my Twitter feed, I'm Paul T UK on Twitter. Uh, you'll see if you just scroll back a little bit, you'll see some of the screenshots that I shared. But I was on Apple. I was alongside, uh, well, actually on Amazon too. I did well in Amazon as well on the charts. I was alongside Margaret Atwood, uh, Dean Coote, Stephen King, Terry Pratchett, Andy Weir, George R R Martin. Um, you know, it was it was a great thrill being. Oh, I was next to June as well uh, on the on the charts. So um, I sold a lot of books. Uh, I made a good profit on them. Uh, I sold a lot on on Apple, which is interesting. And uh, I think that was my that was after Amazon. That was my second most profitable outlet, as it always is when I do a book bub. Um, and I, you know, I had a nice month from Draft to Digital. I got, you know, I got I got. Um, I don't usually make very much money on Kobo, but I had a nice royalty check from from Kobo. It was great, you know, it was great, and it was my sci-fi. And it's a long. I, I often I think forget to push my sci-fi, but I'd I'd been knocked back from everything else by BookBub, so I was pushing everything that I could, and it was well worth my while uh, doing that. It was a nice uh, nice surprise, you know. I, I don't feel like I have a lot of surprises these days, or, or not a lot surprises me these days. Uh, but for a moment in July, when that was doing really well in the charts, it was very exciting and uh, very pleased about it. So, you know, I continue to work through that spreadsheet. I have a, I have a submission in at the moment. I'm waiting for another book, but I constantly and relentlessly put my books in for book bubs all the time. I have always got one there. And some you win, some you lose. So it's interesting. When I was looking at my Kobo, so I do the same with Kobo. I don't really make much money out of Kobo. Very little, really. Uh, I'd love to make more money out of Kobo, but I don't, unfortunately. But I have my non-fictions on Kobo, and I have my sci-fi on Kobo, and I have one thriller, which is which is wide because because I can it's not in any of the compilations. And that thriller is now you see her, the book I originally co-authored with um, with Adam. I forgot his surname. Oh, I'm sorry, Adam. Um, uh, Cro not Croft. No, that's another Adam. Anyhow, the Adam that I did, Nichols, Adam Nichols. I co-authored it with uh, Adam Nichols. So I actually wrote it. So we put both of our names on it. Um, I bought it back from him and it's my book now. And uh, I've always left that wide because I can, because it's not in any compilation. So, you know, I use that in, in the promos as well. And it goes well, actually, that book. So um, I, I get about 50% probably of the Kobo promos that I submit to it's probably about 50 50 50 rejection 50 acceptance whereas with the book bub it's probably more like you know five to ten percent you you with book bub you are knocked back more than you're accepted and I, I just accept that it's just a numbers game throw mud at the wall and just keep going at it relentlessly and that's what I've been doing since I last recorded a podcast episode and I've, I've had another book bub but this one was kind of a remote book bub so I've had sort of two flurries and that was on my sci-fi with John and James uh, John and James Evans uh, those are co-written books so of course they have to manage the book bub as they as they manage the promotion of that book uh, but John and James got a, a they got a, a book bub I'm trying to remember I think it was on the if I remember rightly 
trying to remember whether it was on the uh uh i think it was on the standalone the first book i don't think it was on the box set i can't remember what it was on now but uh, anyhow uh, that gave us our best earnings in a long time and i'd sort of been talking to john and james about uh, whether i could buy those books out I was quite keen to buy them out because they weren't making an awful lot of money. And I'd sort of done some cost projections with them and said, you, you know, if I buy it out of this amount, you're going to be making much more money than if you could continue to promote them. But, you know, ideally, I'd like to buy those. I'd like to buy those books out. I would use my original versions that I wrote. Um, I would get them edited. I'd have to replace a main character that comes from their universe, but otherwise those books would be standalone. And I'd like to republish them and I'd like to continue the series, but they don't make me enough money. I really like the series. I, you know, I'm very pleased with, with what I wrote there. And um, I'd really like to continue that series, but um, uh, they, they, they didn't want, don't want to sell them back. That's their prerogative. We're in a seven year uh, contract. So it was nice to have a good old flurry and some decent money coming in from those books again as a result of the book bub and incidentally when i did my seven pack promo um i i very relentlessly do this now that i i promoted on the first page of that seven pack promo i in the amazon books i i put a promotion on to john and james's books as well and the read through um, I'm pretty sure, I'm just trying to think, I'm sure we got a chart position as a result of that. So even people just sort of reading through the books, I'm sure it gave those a little bit of a boost. Anyway, anyhow, from John and James, I've had a couple of months or several months now of increased earnings. So that, that makes me happy because those earnings have gone quite low on those co-authored books. And, um, you know, I say they're, they're, they're good books. So I was very happy that we got that book, book promo and it gave them a little bit of a push. Um, one of the things I've gone right off, I, I did think I've been terrible at doing my list. I haven't sent any emails out since I published those last books. Those were the last emails I sent out. I don't have a, a regular email marketing regime. I don't have any strategy other than the links at the back of my books. You know, I know I'm, I'm gaining, I know I'm gaining uh, subscribers all the time, not in any great numbers, but I know they're coming from the links at the back of my books because every now and then I look at MailerLite and I can see from the dates that I've, I've got a constant trickle of people who are subscribing to my list, they go on to an automated list um, of emails straight away. So they do get some emails from me, even though I'm not sort of writing them on a daily basis. They're all part of my automation procedure. And at the end of the automation procedure, they get put on a general readers list. And it's that list that hasn't had an email for ages, not since I published any books. So um, I, you know, I, know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know I ought to be doing email marketing, but I just, just lost the you know, the will to do it, I'm afraid. And so I haven't done it for ages. And I was feeling guilty about this thing. Come on, Paul, come on. If you just get your head down, you know, you know what you've got to do. Why don't you commit to doing, you know, a year's worth of email marketing, do one quality email like you were doing, um, do one a month and just, uh, you know, just buckle down and get it done because you know it needs to be done and, and build your list up to 10,000 or something like that. And um, so I thought, okay, right, we'll do that. And what I'll do is I'll start off by doing a giveaway I'll hold a giveaway and I'll boost the list. And I set up a giveaway on Book Funnel, and I was it was a crime and thriller giveaway. And um, my my preferred number is usually about thirty books on those giveaways. I don't like to overwhelm people with books. And I I you know set out all my stalls saying no no suggestive covers. They've got to be genre specific. All the the you, the rules that you have to set if you're doing a Book Funnel promo because people constantly chance their luck uh, in their desperation to get rid of books. 
And so I let this thing run for a bit. I got about the first, I don't know how many books I got, about eight books. And I had the usual, you know, chances. I'd, I'd let some books in that I didn't really want to put in because they weren't really high enough quality. But but I did because I thought I don't really have grounds to turn these down other than that I don't really like the cover. It doesn't really look like the quality that I'm after. But I can't really turn them down because it is within acceptable thresholds. I ran that for a little while and then I thought, do you know what? I remember why I hate giveaways now. <laughs> And I cancelled it. I just didn't run it. I just thought, I, I don't want to do this. I don't want all the crap that gets submitted and they have to turn everybody down. And then people sort of say, oh, why did you turn me down and all this? I just, I can't be bothered with it. And uh, you know, there are so many chances in those giveaways now. I'm just not uh, interested, which is a shame because I've always found giveaways um, really good. And perhaps if I was a bit more involved again, uh, as I used to be with the with other authors, I might be able to pull a team together to do a really sort of good quality giveaway but I'm just not interested in giveaways and the other thing is of course on book funnel now you people if you take part in a giveaway uh, people can see your past performance I haven't done a giveaway in ages so my performance statistics are rubbish and I'm sure they would they would continue to be rubbish uh, if I did one so um, I, I'm, a, I'm a bit sort of stuck at a bit off giveaways at the moment and and the truth of it is the problem with giveaways is that you have to send you have to promote them to your list and I can tell you from the days when I did email marketing, you know, the more rubbish that isn't connected to you that you promote on your list. I mean, it's not even necessarily rubbish. It's just not your work. The more you'll see the responsiveness of your list go down. So I kind of, you know, I kind of like a good giveaway, a good quality giveaway. I don't like poor quality giveaways. I don't really want to take part in giveaways because if I do email my list, I at least want it to be from me and to sort of build my own brand. So I've loved giveaways in the past and they, they've performed really well for me, but I'm, I'm a bit off them at the moment, not really sure what to do next. And the, the other thing I should mention to you, by the way, is um, I also have done uh, the sort of the alternative to one of those giveaways. And that's one of these promos um, that you pay for. So you pay for it. They offer um, a Kindle reader and free books uh, in exchange for email address and then all the authors get the email address at the end now while I was talking to you in my excitement and whilst gesticulating I just closed my browser down so I've lost the page now so let me just remind myself uh, what the service was that I used if I scroll down on Twitter uh, it will remind me what the service was that I use it's down here somewhere come on area uh, is um, oh book sweeps that's right it's book sweeps so I did a uh, mystery and thriller giveaway with book sweeps in July of this year and uh, they at the end of it sent me a list of um, you know thriller readers and uh, they all got added to my mailer light list um, so that was all very nice so I did boost my list a little bit but not very much but yeah I'm a little bit stuck on giveaways at the moment not really sure where to go with those and what to do uh, unwilling, bearing in mind I'm not emailing my list myself, I don't really want to email them with other people's offers. So that's kind of in the pending pile, I would say, uh, at the moment. So uh, one more thing I just want to mention in the marketing section is this complete game changer, which is Amazon, Amazon attribution links. I mean, wow, 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 wow. What a fantastic thing to give us marketers. We can now see, well, this is the holy grail of marketing, we can now see what's working and what's not, what we need to do more of and what we need to do less of. I was all over those link attribution links. I've changed all my Facebook ads to Amazon attribution links. I changed my BookBub ads immediately and now I can track 
the amount of money I'm spending on ads and how much money I'm making back. So if this isn't on your radar yet, and if you're doing advertising and marketing, you, you need to get into these link attribution, uh, this link attribution service on Amazon. It's I can't believe they've given it to us. And one of the things I'm wondering is whether uh, Facebook will end up, you know, banning these link attribution app, um, links because uh, the same with with BookBub. You know, they might just say sorry, but we, you know, they might make it a condition that we've got to use raw links rather than attribution links because, I mean, wow. You know, talk about the emperor's new clothes. With attribution links, you can soon see if the emperor's naked or whether he's got clothes on. And uh, I think we'll find with a lot of the advertising we do, we'll soon find out that the emperor's often, quite often naked. So uh, please look at Amazon attribution links. They're very easy to use. The data does take a little bit of time to feed through. But wow, when it comes through, you know, I can, for instance, I can see how effective my adverts are on Facebook with that big uh, 12 pack of books I've got all the I mean I knew it but I can actually see the data now I've got empirical data for it um, it's a thing of great beauty and something you, you know you must get your head around please now it's not as complicated as Amazon ads and it's something that is separate to Amazon ads even though it's in your ads dashboard but if you're doing any marketing please take a look at that and just as a by the by uh, there's a whole section on that um, Matthew Holmes has in the last couple of weeks completely updated his Amazon Ads Academy and he's now put separate sections in on um, the link attribution with Amazon so it's completely up to date and it explains all of that to you. So there's a ton of stuff there about marketing and this is what I've been spending my time doing. Quality control, marketing, learning, loads of learning I've been doing in between January and today and I'm continuing to do it. I'm really just trying all the time to sort of improve what I know, improve what I do, and overall to up my game. If you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you'll know how I've struggled to get Amazon ads working at any kind of scale. Usually I set up an auto-targeting campaign, I stick on a budget of $5, cross my fingers and hope for the best. I've tried so many Amazon ad books and courses too. Talk about kissing a lot of frogs. That changed when I discovered Amazon Ads Academy, which is produced by Matthew J. Holmes. It's a recent discovery by me. Matt's training is quite simply the best, the clearest, and the most sensible that I've come across to date. His methodical step-by-step -step videos and simple explanations suddenly made Amazon Ads make complete sense to me. I finally got profitable ads running, I'm scaling them up, and I've got a clear pathway ahead. Matt also sends out the best value, information-packed emails that I've ever come across. Seriously, they're so good, I've saved them all up so I can work through them and action all the great tips that they contain. It's like having a book in email form. And if that wasn't enough, Matt also has a Facebook marketing course which applies his ninja marketing skills to that lucrative platform. I bought that one too. In my opinion, Matt's training leaves everybody else's in the dirt and I'd urge you to check him out. My affiliate link is paulteague.net slash AA. You don't pay anything extra if you buy via that link, I just receive a small commission for the referral. At the very least, please subscribe to Matt's emails, they're excellent. You can check out his work right now at paulteague.net slash AA. I'm sure you won't regret it. I said I'd talk to you about uh, self-publishing formula live. Is that what they call it? That's what I call it. Self SPF live is what I call it. This is the uh, Mark Dawson, James Blatch live show 
that they hold in London. And I went down to this in June. Now, I was in two minds about this. I booked my ticket as soon as they released it. If you remember, in the year of COVID, they they held that event. And I had sort of withdrawn from public life at that time. I wasn't happy to go down. Is it March 2020 when they did the first one? And I, I paid for the videos and, and they were great. You know, the video told you everything you needed to know. It was brilliant. But of course, you miss out on the networking. And then I booked a hotel in London. And blimey, hotels in London cost a fortune now since COVID. The, the prices have gone right up. It's very expensive. And the train journey from uh, Carlisle costs a fortune as well. So all the prices have gone up since COVID. Uh, but I had all this stuff booked and I had the ticket booked. And I was going to cancel and I would have cancelled. But I messed up the cancellation period on my uh, Premier Inn in London. So I, I just misunderstood the wording. I, something like you could cancel three days before I went, something like that. And and I, I missed the midnight time. I, you know, it went over midnight and I missed it. I, I just calculated it wrong. And so I thought, all right, well, I've paid for all of this now. <laughs> I can't refund it. I'm off. Now, I was still jittery about uh, COVID and not really happy to be a, a big sort of, you know, people surrounding you event. So I went down with... Uh, a sort of covid option in that i i was just literally going to keep off the sides try not to mix and try not to get involved you know literally just come and go listen to the sessions but not get involved in the social i had a ticket for the party but there was no way i was going to the party and uh, i didn't really want to kind of get involved in the hustle and bustle between the sessions so it was a very sort of odd anti-social way of taking part in the conference it was felt really odd for me because normally i'd be I'd be, you know, looking out for people that I know, uh, you know, talking to people that I don't know and ju just just chatting to authors in the room. But I just wasn't prepared to do that as a kind of COVID principle uh, at, at that uh, moment in time. So it was very odd, but I managed to turn it actually into a really kind of social occasion. So first of all, they had some great talkers on stage. And what I usually do now at these events is I, you know, I pick the ones I want to go to and miss the ones I don't want to go to. So the highlights for me, uh, Joe Penn uh, was great. Jo Joe's, you know, just so good, isn't she? You think of the content that she produces and the, the you know, the poor lady, she had uh, technical problems and she just managed it just brilliantly. She's such a pro and everything she does is always just dripping with information and ideas, isn't it? So always great to catch Joanna. But again, I'd like to have said hello to Joanna, but I, you know, I didn't see her. I didn't seek her out like I normally would. Uh, Mark Recklow was there. I'd like to talk to Mark as well uh, because he does nonfiction. He's very entertaining, very funny, really enjoyed his, his talk. Uh, Susie Quinn, I didn't know anything about Susie Quinn. But her talk was brilliant. And actually, before she'd even finished speaking, I bought her course. I paid extra and bought her course. They had a discount on it. And I just thought, I really like this lady. I really like what she's saying. Uh, she's very entertaining. I really like where she's coming from. So I bought a course. And that's another course I've done since I went home. It had a, a discount on it. I can't remember what it was, about £100 or something like that. It's how to write a bestseller. Really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed the course. It was... Um, you know, it's probably fair to say that I knew or had known a lot of it, but it was a really great way of just refreshing your memory, just just bringing your, you know, sort of experience up to date. Good course, that. 
And then somebody who I didn't really know and who's suddenly on my radar, and that's Rachel McLean. Now, she won the Storyteller, the Amazon Storyteller Award last year. Hasn't really been on my radar, but was immediately on my radar when I heard her at the conference. And I, I bought her book. I think, did she give it away? I think maybe I'd already bought it. I can't remember. Um, I, I read her Amazon book, which wasn't brilliantly useful. I, I made copious notes from her talk and it was Rachel who inspired me uh, when she was telling us she was explaining how she'd had a kind of mediocre career and then how she changed that round you know not massively doing anything different mainly through marketing and and her uh, she was she'd started with Facebook ads but moved on to Amazon ads and it was Rachel hearing her talk that really made me think you know I really got to get on top of these Amazon ads um, I'm really interested in what she was saying about also bought you know her whole strategy is I, I, I guess really what I'm following at the moment um, but she hadn't been on my radar before, and she is very much on my radar now. So those were the talking highlights. I mean, they were the highlights. There was lots of stuff that was really, uh, you know, other stuff that was really good there too. But from a social point of view, so, so there was me kind of, you know, not not hovering during the breaks um, and um, arriving a bit late, uh, you know, leaving a little bit early, That playing that game. When I came into the conference hall, I was sitting at the back at the ends of rows, so I wasn't sort of sitting near people. It was just it was a really bizarre experience, but I, I'm not sort of quite ready to do that fully social thing um, with COVID yet. Even though I was tossing it up, I think I've flown ten or twelve times since the outbreak, and, and and I'm touching wood here. Neither my wife nor I have still caught COVID with all the travel that we've done. I still can't believe it, but I followed a kind of we followed some basic principles and mixing in big crowds avoiding big crowds social crowds like that is one of them uh, and, that, and that's why I did that at, um, at the conference even though I didn't really want to but I managed to turn it into a beautiful social occasion so uh, whenever I'm in London I always make my brother because my brother lives at a different end of the country but it's an hour on the train for him to come into London so the first night I was down there I met up with my London, uh, with my brother I hadn't seen my brother for ages we had a sort of nice night out uh, ate uh, had some food and then I also met up with a friend of the podcast Lucy Branch I can't even remember how Lucy and I got in touch now maybe I'd asked her whether she was going to the conference but Lucy and I uh, met up in a pub and had a drink that was lovely it's lovely to see Lucy and to catch up I'd never met Lucy in person we've spoken before I've interviewed Lucy and we've sort of chatted online but never met in person so it's always lovely to lovely to meet people I didn't know whether Tim Lewis was going to the conference but I think I'd seen him tweeting I thought ah Tim's here I haven't seen him so I dropped Tim a note through Twitter and said you know fancy meeting so Tim and I went for a uh, a coffee and, and lunch one day um uh, you know again away from the crowds we just kind of nipped out early um I saw Claire Sager there hello Claire didn't have enough time to talk to Claire I saw Claire to chat to in the crowds and I'm sorry I missed you Claire because I, I kind of wanted to have a proper catch-up with you uh, but I caught Claire in passing um I saw John Evans who was helping there so it was nice to talk to, to John it was also oh somebody else now and I still can't remember did she see that I was there and did she mention did she tweet me I can't remember but Sid who is uh, been listening for ages and, and Sid I, I can never remember your surname I'm afraid because it's not on your Twitter handle but uh, you know who you are um, Sid and I have been sort of chatting on on Twitter for ages another podcast listener who said oh I, I'm sure it was Sid who contacted me and said I'm here and we met for coffee too so for what was supposed to be like a really anti-social conference I was actually meeting someone and chatting to somebody 
in every break and every sort of lunch or meal opportunity. Um, so it was great, um, even though I was being really antisocial. And then on, on the one time I went for breakfast one morning and I went over to, I think it was a Starbucks just near where my hotel was. And I, um, there was a lady there who had um, one of the sweatshirts on from the conference. And I got talking to her and I had breakfast with her on another day. So, you know, I'm very comfortable kind of talking to people in, you know, in a, in a kind of one-to-one, -one, you know, properly ventilated, not crammed area. That was absolutely great. I'm completely happy with that. It was just those big crowd situations that I wanted to make sure that I avoided. So having gone there to be antisocial, I saw loads of people who I wanted to see. Um, you know, just, it was great. I had a great time, um, even though it was sort of one-on-one -on -one, um, all the time. I actually got a really good chance to have a good yak with everybody. So, you know, if I met you there, I was delighted to meet you. If I didn't have enough time to talk to you, I'm sorry about that. Uh, and I hope that when, if I go next year, you know, it could all be a little bit more um, sociable. I mean, there's also a lot of people I don't know that I'd like to have met and chatted to there, but I just wasn't playing that game when I was down there. Um, if you're sort of on the fence about whether to go, I'd say, you know, yes, it's brilliant. You know, the venue's lovely at, uh, what's it called? The Something Centre. God, my memory's, memory's not got any better since I last did a podcast. It'll come to me in five minutes time when I don't need it. Um, the Something Centre in London. Is it going to come? No, it's not going to come. It's not going to come until I don't need it. So, um, it was great conference center. They do it there every year. They're doing it there next year. Um, you know, lots of space to, to, to mingle and mix and have coffees and chat with people. South Bank Center, the South Bank Center, that's what it is. And you're along the South Bank. Now, um, I had a whale of a time down there because I went running every morning. I went running and I had, um, had a lovely run on the first morning. I was only there for two days. The first morning I ran all round to the Houses of Parliament and by Buckingham Palace and things like that. And then the next morning I did, it was close to a 10 kilometer run. I ran the other way all along the Thames, uh, you know, past the Globe, Shakespeare's Globe. Uh, I don't think it was quite up to London Bridge. I don't think it was. Uh, you know, you, you were in the shadow of the London Eye where my hotel was. Um, I had two wonderful runs while I was in London. And I've spent years going to London, usually with the BBC, on conference courses. And I'm like a mole usually when I'm in London, in that I just jump on the under, uh, the, um, the underground train system, and then I just kind of pop up, you know, pop up in different places. And I've never really kind of got the geography, but it was fascinating. When I did my runs on foot, all of a sudden, London started to make sense to me in a way that it never has before. So it was wonderful. So I just had a brilliant time there, even though I was being... Um, antisocial I learned a load I took you know I took a load back from it um you get the videos anyway so I've gone back to the videos to replay them and you know to check my notes and to action the things so yeah immense value um I've booked my ticket I've booked my hotel already for next year the hotel's expensive again but I've booked it anyway and uh, I've got my ticket for the conference uh you get the video so if I, I'll I can cancel my hotel I'll see where we're up to with COVID and things at that time. I mean, blimey, I've been injected to within an inch of my life now. So, uh, you know, it ought to be okay at some point. I suspect uh, it's really, I suspect it'll just become like flu in the end, that we'll have an injection for COVID every winter, and we'll have an injection for uh, for flu every winter, and we'll be uh, more relaxed about COVID as we are more relaxed about the prospect of, of getting flu. That's what I suspect will happen. 
but um, our kind of our our minds have got to arrive there too, as well as well as the um, you know the practicalities of that. So I don't know how I'll feel in June next year. Um, I think it's pretty likely that I'll go because I enjoyed it so much this year. And if I have to do another antisocial session again, I'll do what I did last this year and just meet people uh, separately because it was you know it was lovely. I had a lovely time, uh, albeit you know not quite what I would have ideally liked to have done. Uh, it was just those social bits that I missed. I'd, I'd like to have gone to the party and you know sort of introduce myself to people. That I'd like to know that I didn't know. Um, so highly recommended. You know, if you if you want to go, it's highly recommended. Uh, but similarly, they do a great job with the videos, and you won't you know you'll miss the social element if you don't go in person. And, and the videos are a great value, and you capture all the information on on the videos. So you know, I would highly recommend the event. I mean, it's it's great for me because we've got a really top quality event now in the UK, which shows me having to travel over to Vegas, uh, you know, with a lot of kind of English based um, sort of marketers there. And, and, you know, really for somebody in the UK, it's the it's the go to indie author event, I would argue, um, at the moment. So it will be on my radar and continue to be on my radar in the years ahead because they do such a good uh, job of it. So so well done to the SPF team and uh, hopefully I'll be there next year. As part of this update, I wanted to talk to you about retirement because you, you'll have been aware that I kind of gave up my corporate work. I, I gave it up actually and it wasn't because of COVID. I, I, I handed my notice in November and I, I just kept extending on a monthly basis saying, look, I'll, you know, I'll keep working until you find somebody and then I'll hand over to them. But but March is, is I'm going by the end of March. If you haven't found somebody by the end of March, I'm going anyway. And, and it just happened to coincide with COVID, but I was going anyway because I decided to draw my uh, BBC pension because I'm 55 and I'm, I'm lucky enough to be of a generation that could do that. So I'm now, uh, you know, living off my uh, BBC pension, and, and in theory, I am inverted commas retired. And as you'll know, uh, my wife and I went to Spain. We spent about eight months in Spain of last year, and um, I got that trilogy written. I got the last three books written of the Morecambe Bay trilogy. I did it by the skin of my teeth, as you'll know if you listen to those last episodes. But I did get that writing done. But I, I pretty well took, um, you know, a year a year off, really, uh, much of which was spent traveling and having a lot of fun. And then we came back to the UK. And domestically, I've sort of found myself in a position where I, I kind of need to provide a house for the kids again for another year or so, just because of changes around COVID and, you know, universities and what, what, what they're doing. So I, I sort of, I kind of expected, I think, when we went to Spain that, you know, that was it, we'll, we'll probably do this every winter now. And I've sort of found myself in a position where I was at a bit of a loss when I recorded the last podcast episode. Now that, you know, in the wilderness is how I describe it. Now that, that isn't to put it down as anything particularly uh, negative. I'd had, I'd had a brilliant time. We've had a brilliant time in Spain uh, and I've been having a brilliant time since. But where I was in the wilderness, it was really with, you know, what are you going to do now? That's that's the wilderness I was in. It's all very nice, you know, lying in in the mornings and, and getting up late and, and not having very much on. But after a while, when we'd got settled back in the UK and, you know, the house was all unpacked and, you know, everything was back where it needed to be. Uh, I, I, I got a sense of being in the wilderness in that, you know, you, you, you know, you're on the slippery slope when you think, oh, do you know what? I'm a bit tired this afternoon. I'll watch a little bit of telly. You, you're watching telly in the daytime and things like that. And, and, and I just wasn't really happy with how I was spending my time. And I felt like I was slowing down. You know, I really felt for a period that 
this is not what I want to do yet. I'm only, what am I, 57? How old am I now? What's the year? Yeah, I'm 57 now. And I, I just got this strong sense that, you know, 57 is a bit young to be doing this, actually. So I decided that I didn't want to, I needed to come up with a plan. Let's put it that way. I needed to come up with a plan. And um, when I talked about the writing section, I'll talk to you about the kind of journey I've been on with actually the writing I've been doing this year. I, I, I didn't want to do writing. I had my running on. We, we've been traveling. We've been doing loads of traveling still. You know, we're still doing a lot of traveling, not all of it abroad. We've done lots within this country. I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you about that in a moment or two as well. Um, so we're doing a lot of traveling, doing a lot of running. My wife is running now. She got her 50th part run t-shirt on Saturday. I, I can't believe, you know, she was, she was, she was a non-runner. We got uh, Fran running during COVID. I man finally managed to coax her out and got her up to 5K. And she's kept at it and she loves it. And so uh, we're running together now, which is brilliant. And we, we turn our runs into weekend trips. We, we get a hotel on the Friday night, go off and have a run in the morning and have a whale of a time. So so we're still doing those kind of leisure things. Um, th you know, This is not a story of somebody being depressed or anything like that. I was just at a loss. I was just unsettled. Wasn't sure what was going to come next. And actually, I found a great video. My brother's just retired, and I sent this video to my brother. It's it's a TED talk called "The Four Phases of Retirement," and it sums up what I was experiencing uh, perfectly. And the, the first sort of phase is when you is literally what we did. It's literally when you're lying on a beach and sort of saying, "Yeah, who I never have to get up again if I don't want to." Um, you know, I, I've got the freedom back. And then phase two is when you've kind of got used to that and acclimatized to that, and you're suddenly thinking, mm, "You know, I've got a long time ahead of me." how's this time going to be structured and spent and that's where i was in phase two and i'm now in phase three and uh, i'll put the video on the show notes uh, I, know, I know a lot of you will be nowhere near this sort of stage in life but i also know a lot of you are close to this stage in life uh, you know where you'll be thinking about retirement but it's a great video because i'm now in the phase where i'm doing i'm trying many new things because i'm fashioning out a new purpose in life which is built around work uh, it's different sort of purpose around life so yeah, I felt a little bit at a loss. Uh, I was I was drifting. We were having a nice time, but I, I thought you know it's too young to be you know lying in five days a week. You know, getting up at ten o'clock. It's not how I wanted to spend my life. When you think how productive I'd been when I had a structure, I was also on a bit of a downer with my writing. I wasn't sure where to go next because I'd finished that series. I'd been unsettled by my editor Judy Cordner dying. It, it sort of if you want, given me a, a, a moment to force a decision upon me about a new editor, you know, what are you going to do about an editor? And I just was a bit sort of stuck with the writing. So in a surprise move in April, I took on, I, I applied for a got a two day a week job at the local university. And since then, I've been working at the local university. Now, again, the reasons for doing this job are different. I'm doing this job now because I want to be among people. I want to work with people. I'm actually um, a student enterprise advisor. So I work with students who want to set up businesses and I get them uh, sort of established in business. And I do uh, doing training sessions for them, much as I used to do actually with, you know, in my corporate work, I just same old thing really, just working with students. And, and funnily enough, there's a couple of jobs I've never done that I've always wanted to try. One of them was to work at university. I've always wanted to see what it's like to work at university. And another one, this is a strange one. I don't know whether I'll ever do this one. I don't know whether I've got the confidence to do it nowadays. But something I've always fancied trying was working behind a bar. 
I, I, I don't know I don't drink a lot I drink barely anything I don't really know a lot about drink you know if you asked me to make a certain cocktail or a certain drink I wouldn't have a clue because I'm just not a drinker I, I've never drunk broadly in my life um, so I don't know a lot about drinks but something I've always fancied knowing how to do was working behind a bar I used to work at a restaurant and the closest I ever got to it was um, if we were quiet in the restaurant you'd you'd wipe down all the bottles and, and the shelves in the bar but I wasn't allowed to serve because I wasn't old enough then um, so uh, yeah I've always sort of fancied bar work but university work is something I fancied and a job came up interestingly it was a job that I'd applied for and got uh, about four years ago uh, when I was doing my corporate work and the reason I didn't take it then was because the funding was was about to come to an end and it felt like a bit of a chance for me so I, I got the job they offered me the job uh, and then I, I explored some financial matters around it and then thought mm, no I'm not going to take it actually so I turned it down so, so when they advertised it again it's now um, four years later the funding basis is different so it's like a permanent funding basis the university pays the salary now so it's not going to end in three months like this original job was going to there's no sort of risk element to it it's two days a week uh, the amount of leave is something like 39 days of leave plus bank holidays you get loads of leave with it and um, you know it's a nine to five job with an hour lunch break so um, you, you couldn't really work less could you and have a job so uh, I applied for this job I was straight up with them about the fact that you know just in case they didn't know I'd applied for it before and been turned down for it so I was sort of scru scrupulously honest about having gone for the job before and I got the job so I, I've been doing that for two days a week since uh since April um, I have a load of leave so if I need you know if I want to go on a jolly or a holiday or something you know I've always got plenty of leave that I can take in term time I pretty well organize my own diary I mean clearly there are obligations I have to do mainly reporting obligations to the university but I, I pretty well manage my own diary so it's working out um, very well um one of my kids is actually studying at that university doing a master's at the university at the moment so every Wednesday when I work on a Wednesday um, I, I go around for lunch I go and have lunch <laughs> but, uh, uh, so it's been lovely actually it's been really nice but the, you know the purpose of it was not really um, it's not really as, a, as a, for its earning potential it's there because I wanted to have a structure to my life you know I wanted to go out to work again but not too much I didn't want it to mess up my uh, you know my breaks my holidays or anything like that and, it, and it's provided actually a really uh, good opportunity for me and, and that and what it's done is given my life uh, a bit of structure again um, uh, you know it's it's nice it's just it's just created that structure and it doesn't really interfere with anything and it's just been nice it's sort of nice to work with younger people and the students because it introduces you to new ideas and new ways of uh, thinking about things so um how many months are we into that now six or seven months you know so that's that's ticking along i won't do it i won't do it forever um but but it's absolutely fine for now and it has it served to give the week that kind of structure that i was lacking and what's followed from that then is writing which is really what this was all about it was it was kind of you know getting out of that that loss that unsettled feeling and getting back to writing and having that job has done that now because it's only two days a week and because it has uh, so much leave obviously I don't get 39 days per leave because I'm part-time I get that pro rata uh, but it still works you know it still works I still got a load of leave let's put it this way I've looked at my leave till the end of the leave year and I'm trying to come up with nice adventures that my wife and I can have to use the leave up you know so I'm not strapped for leave at all it's um, it's more than I need uh, on a day-to-day -day basis so we've done 
um, loads of travel. Uh, you know, the kind of post-retirement travel continues. So uh, this year, since I last spoke to you, uh, we went to the Scottish Highlands for a week. Um, <laughs> yeah, we went to the Scottish Highlands. Now, that was actually a booking that we'd had before COVID. And then so we were, we were using up a booking that we'd had before COVID. We went up to Fort William. And uh, I'll just tell you this, it'll make you laugh. I, while we were in Fort William, I wanted to get a run in that week. We ran at Fort William uh, Park Run. We tailwalked actually rather than running it. I, but we, we, we attended Park Run at Fort William, which was lovely. Uh, but I wanted to get a midweek run in. So I, I contacted the Fort William running group and said, do you mind if I join you and tag along for a week? Now, I've never noticed this about Fort William, but if you know Fort William, it's built up a great big hill. And Scottish runners, certainly Fort William runners, they don't do the kind of running I do in Carlisle. They run up hills. And I honestly, they almost took me away on a stretcher. The number of hills we did on that training session that week nearly killed me. It, it was almost it was almost embarrassing to be there. They were all so fit. Anyhow, it was good fun and I got my run in for the week. But um, I think twice about uh, joining the runners in Fort William again. It was brutal that, that night. Um, so we went to the, we went to the Highlands. Uh, we went to Hamburg, uh, which was brilliant. We, we we I messed up the flights. You know I never read the small print, so um, I, I messed up the flights. And I don't know what I did. I, the reason I was doing it was because I was bumping the flights that the kids couldn't have when they couldn't visit us in Spain when we were in Spain. So I'd be bumping these flights and rebooking them. And I don't know what I did, but anyhow, I I had us. We were flying from. I think it was Edinburgh to Hamburg, and then I'd got us coming back from somewhere near France back to, to, to Edinburgh. I don't know how I did that. I only realised late. And anyhow, I, I did, did some jiggery-pokery, and we ended up having to come back. It was cheaper for us to take a train from Hamburg down to Berlin and then to catch the plane back from Berlin to Edinburgh. So that, that's what we did. But I'm actually pleased it happened because we had a lovely cross-country train journey from Hamburg to Berlin. We... We had a lovely run. Fran and I did a run around the Brandenburg Gate. Uh, we did a 5k run all around there because our hotel was close to so that. It was brilliant. Uh, we did a park run in Hamburg, which was a treat. Um, you know, just just a whale of a time. It was a beautiful weekend in Hamburg, uh, and we absolutely loved it. So so that was a bit more foreign travel we did. Uh, I've been up at Edinburgh. We did. This was the other week. Um, I did a park run around Holyrood at the uh, Scottish Parliament there. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we went to Copenhagen. Um, we did a park run again. This is why it's so lovely that my wife's running with me because we we build we're building in the park runs to our adventures. So, went to Copenhagen. We did a park run there, which was brilliant. Uh, did lots of tourism around Copenhagen. That was fabulous. And then I've got breaks booked in. We're going to uh, Malaga uh, over New Year. Um, never been to Malaga before. We've got two runs booked in called the San Silvestre. Lovely runs that they do in Spain in the New Year. Um, I'm going to Benidorm with my mum, who has been sort of ill. And I said to her mum, you know, if we don't draw a line in the sand, you're never going to get to Spain again. Let's just book this blasted holiday and we'll cancel it. And I'll rejiggle the flights and everything if, if you can't make it at the time. But if you can make it at the time, it'll be great fun. So I've booked my mum in. Me and mum are going to Benidorm in February. And then Fran and I are going to Lisbon in March. So, um, you know, from a kind of retirement point of view, the retirement continues. Um, we're continuing because we can't sort of travel for long periods abroad at the moment because we need to keep the house for the kids. We can't, you know, pack everything up like we did and disappear again. We need to sort of keep it aired open, ready for the kids. We're not 
we the, the the soonest we could do it might we might be able to get away for a longer break next year we've got it penciled in and you know the wife's investigating a plan um so we might be able to do it for a couple of months next year we just have to wait and see uh but in the meantime what we're doing is just taking lots of uh we're having lots of adventures we're just constantly having adventures at the moment uh and i'm just about to book another one interestingly this is book this is based around the books which i'll talk to you about in a minute um, but we're about to book a, oh we went to another holiday I forgot to tell you about this we went on another holiday in Hull it was a place near Hull um, because I was I was good to research the new books that I was writing there but we ended up just having lots of fun and, and two of our kids came along with us as well which was lovely because I haven't holidayed with the kids for a long time now they're grown up so two of the kids came with us we had a great time in Hull so that was another holiday I'd forgotten about to tell you um, but we're going back to Hull in May and what uh, because I am writing the series of books on Hull now and because I've now got my location sorted I want to go back just to take some photographs of them and to make sure the details correct so I said to my wife before I publish these books I want to just go back if we can so what we've worked out we could do in May is we're going to go to Hull I'm going to do the research I need to do then we're going to jump on the ferry to Rotterdam we're going to do a park run in Rotterdam I've never been to Rotterdam before so that'll be a new country then we're going to come back, finish off the research in Hull, and then we'll get back in time for my wife to go back to her work on the, on the Monday morning. So, um, you know, that's also sort of connected with work. So we've got loads of, um, you know, exciting things going on, some of them related to writing and, and some of them not. So from a retirement point of view, you kind of come to me in, in a place where I, I, you know, I know what I'm doing again. I'm, I'm focused again. I don't feel like I'm in the wilderness again. But I am, I am watching it. The, 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 thir the third and third phase of that video is where he says you know, try lots of things it's like being a teenager or a kid again. You know, when when you've got kids and they say, oh, I want to try learning the trombone or I want to try out for the football team or, or whatever it is and as a parent you just support the kids just you know you run them there you buy them whatever equipment you need you just support your kids in whatever they want to do because you know that when they try enough things they'll find something that they love and they'll probably take that on into adult life well the argument that this retirement video makes is that you kind of need to go back to that again when you leave work because you've had so much of your life structured by work he basically says you know try a million things say yes to everything try a million things so i'm in that phase of trying a million things at the moment to you know get that structure right and to work out what's going to carry me through um, you know what are going to be my interests in the year ahead so obviously travel is one of those things writing is one of those things those are things i want to take still into the the years ahead uh, this is going to make you laugh but i am now relearning how to be a dj this is something that I decided to do. I'm doing all these things that I wanted to do. Singing is another one that I want to do. That's also on the list. I want to go to a singing class and, and work with somebody who can see, see whether I, there's any chance of me ever singing or not. Uh, you know, something that I abandoned at school because I thought I was rubbish. And uh, since, I, since I've become an adult, I know that you can teach people to do most things. So singing is the next thing I want to come to. But at the moment, um, when I was 16, I think I've probably told you this, uh, with a friend, I built a disco. Um, we, we ran the disco, we sold it when I went to university, when I was at uh, college, university, I used to get paid to do the discos in the junior common room. I did that for three or four years. And then that trans transitioned into trying to get into radio. And then I kind of got that out of my system in radio for years. And so, um, so you know, I've always loved uh, you know music and things and playing music. And I, I, for much of my life, uh, since I was, since I built that disco, I've managed to get that out of my system. Well, um, I was, when I met my brother in London, 
my nephew yeah my nephew is is playing with decks and things like that again and i had a conversation with my brother and, and said you know um, do you know he could go to college and learn this stuff and um, and i was really pleased my brother went home talked to my nephew and my nephew who was sort of again he, he as a youngster was sort of in the wilderness he, he got a gardening business going and was was trying to, to get the dj going and he didn't even realize he could go off and do a course at university to do this so so this conversation with my brother ended up with um, his my nephew going off to bristol to do a djing course and, and it made me think again that um one of my plans for spain when we when we're able to go to spain every every winter which hopefully won't be you know too long now uh, when the kids are all sorted um is that i one of the notions I'd sort of entertained in my head was that I would either try and learn a musical instrument and perhaps be a member of a cover band, or if I didn't have the patience to learn a musical instrument, that I could go back to the DJing that I used to do when I was younger. Um, and, and having this conversation with my brother inspired me to, to just do a little look around. And I found that there was a DJing course in Leeds where I could pay for some private tuition. I didn't want to do a course for COVID reasons again. So I paid for a day's private tuition jumped in the car, got a hotel in Leeds, uh, went into town and, and spent a day with a guy who set up a DJ business, uh, an older guy, you know, a bit younger than me, but sort of a mature guy rather than a kind of, you know, sort of hip hopper kind of DJ, the kind of guy who would appreciate the music that I wanted to play. And I said to him, look, I used to do this. I've worked for years in radio. Uh, I know kind of one end of a piece of music from another. I know, I know the basics. You're not sort of teaching me from scratch, but I'm, you know, I'm hopelessly out of date. I used to just on the old disco decks you just used to do a crossfade that's pretty well all you could do i said i want to understand what it is they're doing on these modern decks i want to get the basics of how to use a modern deck i want to understand how licensing works with mp3 files all these things that i wanted to know and i spent the day doing that and uh, as a result of that day to my left here i have a dj deck which i've bought it's not an expensive one it's just one that i can learn and for the past couple of weeks uh, when I moved from CDs, I ripped all of my CDs and I have a, I've had a huge collection of CDs. And when I transferred my computer, to my horror, the licensing got messed up. So a load of those CDs I was unable to use. And, and over, over the years, every now and then I've, I've, I've come back to it to try and find if there's a tool to allow me to turn all those ripped CDs back into MP3 files again. Well, because I'm doing this disc jockey thing again, it, when I did disc jockeying last time, I used to have a great heavy case full of 45 rpm vinyl records that's how we used to do it in the old days and now it's all mp3 files on a laptop so so i thought right let's get as much of my music in as we can to assemble a, a music collection and all i want to dj is the music of the 70s and the 80s and maybe i might do a heavy rock set as well so i don't want to do you know i don't i, I love uh, modern music but i don't know enough about it to do a dj i just want to dj if i do anything with djing i want to dj for people of my age who were there at the time who, re who remember the 80s and the 70s it's the, the sort of music of their their kind of younger years uh, i don't want any nonsense with people having fights and things i just want it to be people my age who just want to go out for a good good time that's that's so I've no huge aspirations with this and my aspiration is is that what i might do is if, when i learn how to do this and we're spending winters in spain i'll go and bang on the doors of a few pubs and clubs that have that kind of audience and say can i have a gig once a week that and just do what i used to do when i was younger and it will just be something to sort of entertain me and uh, give me sort of pleasure uh when we're out in spain uh, and I might occasionally do things in this country too. But, you know, nothing serious, not a business, just something that I do occasionally and more because I just love that sort of era of music and like playing the music. So I did the DJ course. I was inspired by that. Um, I found 
I was delighted that I found um, a piece of Microsoft software that that, re that licensed, brought the licenses back on all the music I had. So I've been going through all my old music. I've got you know, thousands of tracks now of 80s and 70s tracks, which I've loaded into the system on the computer. I've bought myself a DJ course online um, to remind me of all the stuff that I learned on the DJ day and uh, you know to go into more detail with it and so one of the things I'm now doing is relearning how to be a DJ I've also got this is a guilty pleasure this is I bought myself I used to have when I was on the radio the Guinness Book of Hit Singles you know this is a big paperback and so you just I used to love flicking through this and just looking at the hits and reminding myself who'd had a, a hit with what record and when and so I went on to Amazon and I've got this huge British hit singles and albums and I've gone all the way through it just uh, it's got a big timeline of number ones from the 70s and 80s and I've, I've been buying all the little tracks where I've got gaps in my own sort of musical collection I've just been filling those gaps in by buying all those tracks so I've now got this brilliant collection of about two to two, just nearly 3,000 tracks that I could use in, for my sort of DJ sets now and now I'm sort of learning how to do all the beat mixing and all this sort of stuff it's all changed since I was younger so I'm learning something new and as I say it may it may not come to anything but the the vague aspiration is is that when we sort of go to Spain for, for winters this is something that I'll do uh, for fun and enjoyment and to get to know people 70s 80s maybe heavy rock um, uh, DJ sets in pubs that cater predominantly for people of my age who are in Spain um, over sort of Christmas and New Year that's what I want to do. So that that's kind of where my retirement is uh, at the moment, that I'm, um, you know, re-engaged re with a lot of things again, trying a lot of new things, keeping the old things that I want to do, doing the least amount of work that I possibly can to, just to give my week that structure. And at some point, probably around me doing um, a university course, which I'll talk to you about in a moment or two, I'll bring you up to date with that in a moment or two, I'll probably sort of leave the work and then refocus on the writing. But that that's where we're up to with retirement. And if you are uh, a gentleman or a lady of a certain age, as I am, I would um, recommend that you take a look at that Four Stages of Retirement video. It's very um, educational. I wish I'd watched it before I actually did sort of take my, my pension and, and sort of officially retire from um, uh, the, the day job, if you want, um, and have a more uh, unstructured uh, way of living. Because I did struggle with it a little bit, but I'm pleased to report that I'm now back on course. As somebody who's been making money online for well over a decade, I'm a regular user of the freelancing website Fiverr.com, and that's Fiverr with two R's at the end. Over the years, I've got all sorts of jobs done on Fiverr. I mainly use it to get my 3D box set covers done, as everything else I've tried either looks terrible, costs too much, or is far too technical for me to use. I've used the Fiverr-based BK Knights book promotion service on many occasions. I've had podcast voiceovers recorded there, and I've even got three book promos translated into Chinese for a crazy promotional test I ran some time back. In short, Fiverr needs to be on your radar if you work on the internet. It's a great addition to any self-publisher's toolkit. I've assembled a collection of self-publishing services available on the website at paulteague.net slash Fiverr. That's F-I-V-E-R-R, -R, the double R at the end. Why not head over now and see what's available? As ever, you don't pay any extra if you purchase a gig via that link, and I receive a small commission for the referral. 
It is a case of buyer beware on Fiverr. Please do your due diligence and check each vendor's reputation and feedback before you buy. However, on the one occasion when I wasn't happy with a job, I got my money back from Fiverr without a problem. So why not head over there now, discover what jobs you can get done for just $5 and use that referral link. It's paulteague.net forward slash Fiverr and that's Fiverr, F-I-V-E-R-R. In this next section, I want to discuss some new resources I'm using. This is another one of the reasons that I felt that it was time for me to just drop a one-off podcast update because I've changed some things I've done in the past nine months or so and I'm quite keen to share those and let you know how I've been getting on and the main one of those is that I've changed the way now that I'm writing my books now there is a sort of proviso with this I as you know when I was traveling around I was trying to find a cloud-based software that I could use on my Chromebook uh, that didn't use software installation or anything like that uh, because it's easier for me to write and I wanted to store in the cloud and have backups and all these nice things and I got on okay last year with the Readsy free tool it's great it's perfectly all right no, no problem with it at all I think my only problem with that tool is that obviously Reads' purpose is to try and get you to use their contractors and to access the tool you have to kind of go into what is effectively a marketplace for subcontractors it's not really a dedicated writing tool but it's great it's free I wrote my last trilogy on it and I had no problems with it whatsoever so I'm a big fan of Reads' tool and then when Dave Chesson brought out his Atticus product I was straight in there uh, you know Dave's so good he supports everything he's a writer he's well in Royaled with the writing industry knows exactly what he's talking about so I just bought Atticus uh, without even thinking about it but what became clear to me with Atticus is that it had teething problems I mean it's a heck of an undertaking to create a software I remember when the guys the 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 um smarter uh, author guys in, in the states you know Johnny Dave and uh, what's the other one Johnny Devon Sean when they created their software I remember when they announced that they were creating a writing software several years ago now and I was still a bit bruised from my experience creating a Facebook software and everything I'd learned with that and I remember thinking be careful what you wish for that's going to be a huge undertaking and uh, I think by their own admission they they learned that and they ended up selling the software because it's just such a it's such a money sink doing a software and I also thought that when Dave launched Atticus I mean Dave has a policy of not charging uh, monthly or even yearly for his softwares and I know again from my past software experience that unless you're shifting a lot of software every month every week constantly um, you have to change software all the time you're having to update it and modify it um, you know it becomes a bit of a burden if you don't have a way of funding that that's the big lesson I learned from running software um, so with Atticus I, I bought that straight away but there's a, there was a lot wrong with it that meant that I wouldn't use it it was a too glitchy for me um, so I, I didn't use it and then I was listening to Jerry Evanoff's uh, podcast and Jerry mentioned that he'd found something called Living Writer which I'd never heard of before and because I'm in the zone for a writing software I went straight for it and had a look at it and you know when you find a software that you like it, I was like this with Vellum when you find the thing that does the job for you you know it almost instantly you fall in love almost instantly and and that's what I was like with Living Writer the, the moment I opened it and had a look around I could see exactly what I was looking for in that it was like it's like Scrivener uh, and the Novel Factory which is the one I use but everybody else uses Plotter I think don't they but I, I didn't need Plotter because I use Novel Factory um, but it was like a combination of Scrivener 
and uh, Novel Factory. The Novel Factory I use for my locations and my character planning, and obviously Scriven I use to write my books. But Living Writer had it all. And, and the other thing it had is was a, a really good, you know, I, you know, I like my numbers and you know, I like my targets. It had a really good target tool so that you could say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm writing a 75,000 word book. I write every Monday and Tuesday, and I need to have this book written by the end of December. And it would kind of calculate the words that you need to do. And it was just a much more sophisticated way of monitoring your word progress. Uh, it enabled you to plan in the same way that Scrivener does, so you can have the little panels that you could drag around. Um, but also within the writing tool, there was lots of flexibility. So I loved it and I bought it for a year. Oh, and the other thing is it has a phone app. Now, I, I'm never going to write on a phone. Uh, I, I just, you know, I'm two fingers and thumbs. Uh, I, I curse predictive text enough. There's no way I'm writing a book on a phone, but I know a lot of people do. But the, the principle with Living Writer, I've always had this principle that I wanted to be able to run my entire business from my phone. And although I'm never going to write on my phone, I've now achieved that principle in that I could now do everything in my business on my phone. I've got my accounts on there. I've got my writing software on there. I'm looking at my phone right now and it's got all my books in there. I could open them up and tap away and type on them. So, you know, I, I can now entirely be in the cloud. Now, the other thing about Living Writer is that it has different uh, writing structures. So, you, you know, we've got the three act uh, structure. You've got, uh, is it the snowflake one? I've never used the snowflake one. You've got the save the cat one. And actually it's got something in there called the 27 chapter plot, which I'm actually using at the moment. I just thought, oh, let's give something a try and see how I get on with this. Um, and the other thing I like about it is when you have your files in there, you've got your book files in there, it automatically links up with Canva so that you can create a, you know, a cover, either a real one or a mock one. I just use it for mock ones so that I just haven't got a load of blank documents in. And I put, I put very simple covers and titles on the books. And again, it helps you get in the zone when you're writing. So there's nothing I don't like about Living Writer. Uh, and I bought it for a year, except that I was listening to Jerry's podcast again. And if you're not listening to, uh, Jerry's podcast. I recommend that you do. Uh, he's doing it with Rich these days, and it's it's very interesting. A very interesting dynamic on that. Excuse me, that's my phone alarm just going off there. It's got a really interesting dynamic on it. And um, Jerry said that he'd written. Uh, I think he'd written a whole book in Living Writer, and he was just bemoaning the fact that he couldn't use curly quotes, and that he'd had to, I think, extract it as a word document and then add the curly quotes retrospectively. Now, that unfortunately for me is a complete deal breaker because I've been through that before. I can't remember what the software was, but I've been through curly quotes hell before, smart quotes as they're called. So I went on to Living Writer. I put a little bit of text in from an old book and tried it. Thought, oh no, oh no, I'm not writing a book in Living Writer, not until we get these curly quotes sorted out. So I dropped them a note and said, this is a deal breaker. Uh, you know, it's really important that we have smart quotes. Everybody wants that. I notice even in Atticus, he's got a big button on there now that applies smart quotes. It's really important when you're formatting books. And so uh, Living Writer got back to me and said, oh, we're adding curly quotes in, in a short time. Uh, I looked at it the other day and they still weren't there. So I wrote to them again and that update has been delayed. But they assure me that by the end of December, the curly quotes option will be there. And at that point, I am completely happy with the software and I'll write a book in it. But the book I'm writing at the moment has got into Scriven. I've done it the same old way at the moment, even though I've got the plan in Living Writer. I've got Living Writer open. I'm not writing it until I can make sure I get the curly quotes. I don't want to get stuck and having to do that manually because it's a nightmare. 
So I'm recommending Living Writer to uh, please check it out. I think it's got a 14 day trial. I'll put an advert in this podcast with my referral link on it. Just a reminder that when you use my referral link, it costs you no extra. I just get a kickback um, if you make a purchase, if you go on to make a purchase. But I only recommend stuff that I use and love and I, I drop it if I don't. So for instance, I used to recommend SiteGround for web hosting. Uh, I went off SiteGround. Um, I was fed up with the way they were squeezing the resources. I was having all sorts of problems with my website. So I don't use SiteGround anymore. I don't recommend it. You won't hear me recommending it on this podcast. Um, and I'm pretty sure that I even went back and changed the old link so that I can't take any money from it because I just don't recommend it anymore. You know, it was great. It's no longer great. So I don't use it. Um, so yeah, if I, if I recommend something, you know, I'm using it, I've bought it and I like it. Um, and I, I would really urge you, if you're not entirely happy with what you're using at the moment to write books, uh, take it out for a 14 day spin, see what you think of it. But I, I think it is the writing software for my money uh, at the moment. And it does things that Atticus still doesn't do. It's it's ahead of uh, Atticus in development. So I haven't written Atticus off. Obviously, I've paid for it once. I'll get to keep it. I keep checking in every now and then. But for me at the moment, it's Living Writer. That's my choice for a writing software. And if they get this curly quote sorted out, when I get to book two, I will be writing that in Living Writer and taking it out for a proper spin. Here's a surprise for you. Guess who started using Smashwords? Yep, you can teach an old dog new tricks. I have now listed all my wide books on Smashwords and I cannot remember for the life of me what made me go back to Smashwords. I, I just, was it, was it something happened with Draft the Digital or something like that? I think they merged and something made me go back to Smashwords anyway. And I had a look at it and, um, I actually like it. I, I'm, I'm really embarrassed to say this because for years I thought Smashwords was this, I think it was the, the site design. The site design looked so old fashioned that I'd kind of written it off. And I know in the old days when I started self-publishing, I'd gone to Smashwords and you used to have to get this document that told you how to format your book in the old days. And, and it, it was all this stuff was really hard in the old days. And so I, I'd gone to Smashwords I'd looked at this document, this formatting advice. It was like gobbledygook to me in those days when I didn't know what I was doing. You didn't have vellum in those days. You know, everything was difficult when I started or much more difficult than it is now. And so I realized I didn't need Smashwords. I could just go and draft the digital. So I, I abandoned Smashwords, never used it and never came back to it. For some reason I went back to it. I had a look at it. I've listed the books and I, I actually like it. There's some, some elements in there that I, I really like. And they're kind of... Um, they're internet marketing things, the things I used to do when I was internet marketing, and I really like them. One of them, they've got some really sort of solid internet marketing principles in there. So you can sort of add discounts to the pages and you could do little embeds. You get a little embed code to embed on your page and things like that. So um, I thought, well, look, these books are wide now. My nonfiction and my science fiction are wide. These might as well go on, on Smashwords. Um, I don't expect to make a lot of money, but I made my first sale the other day. You know, it's all extra income, isn't it? I made my first sale on Smashwords. Um, I actually found it really easy to list on Smashwords. You don't have to go through all the file shenanigans that you used to. So this document, you know, advising you about how to format the files, you don't need that anymore. It just took a, a generic upload straight from, from my vellum. Um, so I didn't have to do anything special for it. And I found the listings really straightforward and easy. I like the sort of print, uh, the pricing options, the discount options. It, it, it's fabulous. Uh, so I want to apologize to Smashwords for not using you for all these years and for discounting you. It's actually a good service. And if you haven't looked at it recently, I'd recommend you go over and take a look. It's, it's good. And while I remember to mention that, you know, I actually get um, 
quite a lot of promos now directly from Drafter Digital asking me if I want to take place, part in promotions in you know Apple Books or or Kobo. And it always has. This is what reminded me. It always has a submit via Draft the Digital or a submit um, through Smashwords. Um, so again, all these things are getting better and easier all the time. Just get really good doing promotions through Smashwords and, and Draft the Digital. Now they make it really easy uh, to list your book and put it forward. So to me, they're, they're Draft the Digital now with its access to promotions is leveling up now with Amazon and it's leveling up with, um, with Kobo promotions as well. The other bit of software I use this year is the author helper now this used to be called something else and i've forgotten what it was called but they call, they call it the author helper now i've known it as something else for years and i've, I've forgotten what that title is um I, if i i, I might uh, if i open it up on the screen it might have the old title on it because i know it, it was one of these things oh they've even changed the url now so i can't remember what it was called what it used to be called and um, i have mentioned it to you before but so the author helper basically is a one-stop shop for managing your books and looking at your analytics. So the, the idea is basically that you can bring in your Facebook ads, your Facebook sales, you can bring in your Amazon sales, and it will it will automatically generate things like read through for you. And it was read through that I was wanting to generate. So again, this is part of the, the you know the massive amount of background work I've done. Uh, I haven't written any books or published any books, but I've been doing loads and loads of work in the background. I haven't been slacking. I went through the author helper. I've listed all my books in the author helper, which you know takes some time to pull them in and to bring in all the um, you know all the identification details and things like that. So um, oh, it was called Reader Links before it just flashed up in there before it changed the URL. It was called Reader Links before. It's now called the Author Helper. So I took a trial of this. I've, brought, I've got all my books in there. Uh, I'm all listed. I experimented with bringing in, um, you still got to, unfortunately, still got to bring in uh, downloaded reports from Amazon. So um, it's not really quite there for me just yet in that I really expect to use APIs, a direct connection these days. I don't want to be downloading, uh, you know, CSV files from Amazon or, or, or Facebook with the data in and then bringing those in. It wasn't, it wasn't quite neat enough for me yet, but uh, I did have a look at it and I do like it. Uh, I was on the verge of subscribing to it for a year. And I think, I'll tell you what I think it was that made me change my mind is signing up to Matthew's Amazon Ads Academy because as part of the Ads Academy, Matthew gives you a ready-made spreadsheet which helps you to figure out a lot of that stuff. So I just put that on hold for a while. Um, but it, it's good, you know, it's, it's a good bit of software. It's $179 a year, which is not an awful amount. And as I was thinking to myself, well, what I need to do is I need to, um, you know, I need to tackle the things that I haven't tackled because the stats and the, the nonsense puts me off. Uh, and, uh, and so I really got to grips with setting uh, the author helper up, but I'm not quite ready to use it just yet. I got too many other things on. Just to mention it, by the way, because I can see it on my screen here. I, because I'm a member of uh, Mark Dawson's training, I, if you go to the the kind of freebies and discounts that they give you when you're a member. I used a coupon code, which gives me a discounted price forever uh, using the author helper. So if you are in the zone of wanting to take a trial of this, if you want to sort of see if uh, you can get it to work with your read throughs and things like that, it is, it is quite sophisticated, just not quite there technically for my taste yet. Um, you can get a forever discount code. I can't remember what the discount is now because mine's been applied, but I know that $179, roughly, it's about £150 probably at the moment, you know, for a piece of software for a year that does as much as that does 
is not an awful lot to pay for. I'm just not quite ready to buy in fully on it yet. Uh, and I would like it to be slightly more complex and pull the data in via an API. An API is basically a secure connection between the author helper software and the Amazon or the Facebook software. It's just a slightly more sophisticated way of bringing the data in. So keep an eye on the author helper. Um, it has a free trial. So if that's something that you think might interest you, uh, take a free trial, uh, load it up with your books and see what you think. But it's been, you know, been an interesting little experiment for me that. So those are the new resources that I'm sharing. And I think Smashwords and Living Rice are obviously the big headlines there. Let's move on now to my university master's course, because I did tell you when I last broadcast the podcast that I'd applied for and I'd got a place on a master's and it was something, I think it was crime writing and, uh, and something else, wasn't it? Crime writing and, uh, well, I was, I was going to say DNA, but it was, um, Forensics, that's the word I'm looking for. It was crime writing and forensics, and that was going to be at Dundee University. And this is one of those things that I just, I don't know where I'd come across it. You know how you come across these things online. I'd looked at it, thought that looks brilliant. That's exactly what I want. Uh, you know, a bit of um, a bit of kind of police procedure, forensics knowledge, and then to immerse myself in crime writing to improve my craft over the years. So I applied for it. I got a place and I was due to go in September. But, but the reason that I'm not doing that right now is in May, I got an email from Dundee University saying that they weren't running the course this year. So the course was cancelled. It was like, thank you, not, but you know, thank you very much, but that's it, uh, no course. So uh, I thought, oh, right, that's very interesting. Isn't it? Um, so I immediately set about uh, looking for what else I might do because I was quite psyched up to do that course. I was quite looking forward to doing that course. That particular course in Dundee did come with problems because it would mean me being up in Dundee. It was a physical course, not a virtual course. And, and somehow I would have to get up to Dundee. I'd kind of worked out, well, that's fine. I could train it up. My wife would come. We'd have some fun in Dundee while we we're up there. And I'd maybe have to do that two days a week if the, if the um, sort of uh, curriculum, the timetable worked for us. So there were still some ifs, buts and maybes with that course. But when they cancelled it, I had a look around to see what was available. And I discovered, to my great joy, um, that there are other crime writing MA courses available. Now, the procedure with this is that I didn't even know these courses were available. And when the Dundee one came up, I thought, that's perfect. And I just applied for it. I didn't look. I wasn't generally in the market for a course. It's like a chicken and egg situation. I happened to see the course. It was perfect for what I wanted. I applied, got uh, a place I was going to do it but it was only when that course was cancelled and I thought oh I'm quite disappointed by that I quite wanted to do that that I then started hunting around for other courses and I found out that the University of East Anglia which is in Norwich in the UK that they also do a course and that their course is a two-year virtual course now uh, the I didn't I didn't know any of this because obviously I've been doing my research but the University of East Anglia does a lot of MA writing courses they do general creative writing courses but they're really big on on writing and they're also extremely good they've got a great record of getting writers published uh, traditionally obviously but uh, one thing's really noticeable from following them on Twitter is how proactive they are in promoting and getting their authors published. So uh, the course was was perfect. It was crime writing again. Uh, it was slightly better actually than Dundee because it's virtual. And in this case, on this course, I go down. I would go down to Norwich. Um, I think it is for two days. 
uh, each term you you have sort of practical sessions two or four days I can't remember how many days it is two or four days uh, once for each term in the first year and then the, and then it's all you know it's all virtual and then the last year is working entirely on your project so because it's virtual and uh, obviously the attendance is minimal that works much better for me domestically because frankly I could do it abroad it's you know I could I could fly over if I needed to for the sessions um, so that was much more appealing so I got my application off to the University of East Anglia and uh, got a place which is great so I've got an open and unconditional offer of a place at the University of East Anglia from the 23rd of September now again this is one of these chicken and egg things I can't quite remember what I discovered and when but a lady called Sophie Hannah was on my radar and I think that when I was looking at the University of East Anglia I happened to find out that Cambridge University also do a course on crime writing it's very expensive uh, uh, at the University of Cambridge as you'd expect I think it's about it's about 21,000 pounds for two years yeah so you'll understand that uh, that's the sort of course that you have to approach with some caution if you're going to commit that amount of money to it um, the course at the University of East Anglia is half that price and I've got that money tucked away in my business account already because it was already there for the Dundee course which I told you in January you know, that money's been budgeted for a while so I can pay for it with cash rather than taking a, a, a student loan for it I want to pay for it for cash through the business I don't want to take a loan for it if I do it so the Cambridge University one is £21,000 and it's run by a lady called Sophie Hanna so I think I've got my order right here I looked at the course they had a webinar uh, where Sophie as the course leader was doing a presentation I did some research on Sophie and it turns out you know she's a huge kind of you know psychological thriller writer and she's even been chosen by the Agatha Christie estate to continue writing the Poirot book so you know she's a big deal kind of author and um, it was just completely coincidentally that Sophie was also on James Blatch and Mark Dawson's podcast uh, uh, a week or two after I did that so from from not knowing who she was at all she was suddenly kind of all over the place and on my radar now I researched uh, Sophie and she does a course called the dream author course uh, and so um, I, I I really liked her kind of attitude and the way she came over uh, on the webinar that was promoting the Cambridge course so I signed up for the dream author course and thought this is fine let's get see what she's like see how she teaches because if you're going to invest that amount of money in a master's course at Cambridge you want to know that it's the real thing so um Sophie's you know great I, I really like this the dream author course it's it's really really good I really like her kind of practical attitude to it and most importantly with Sophie you know she is a best-selling writer of crime stroke psychological thrillers she is doing what I want to do at the scale that I would like to do it so it's quite important to me that the people who teach me are not theorists you know they're not just academic that they're actually doing what I want to do so that's a big attraction of the Cambridge course and the other thing about Sophie of course is that she brings in uh, because of who she is she brings in speakers who are kind of top talent in her field who just happen to be her friends so I have applied also for the Cambridge course but uh, they don't do the appointments to that course until I think it's February I think the I think the drawbridge comes up for applications in February and then they do the interviews and then I wouldn't even know till March of 2023 where I got a place on that course so my strategy at the moment 
is I'm actually quite pleased that they cancelled the Dundee course because I think you know these courses are more suitable. The Cambridge one, incidentally, is also virtual, but with the Cambridge one, it's uh, four four day sessions down at Cambridge over the course of two years, and then in the last year, um, as with the University of East Anglia, you're working on your manuscript and you're workshopping that and you're sort of perfecting that and then. Uh, making that available to agents who are contacted through the university. So both of those are very attractive to me. They work extremely well from a domestic point of view, in that both those dates are in the diary already and they don't clash with anything. So I could do either of those courses. Uh, clearly the Cambridge one is going to be uh, very competitive and clearly that price tag, I'd have to think very, very carefully about that price tag. That's a lot of money. And you really want to be very sure that it's going to get you where you want it to get you for that amount of money now if it does get me where i want it to get me that'll be fine it won't be a problem because you'll make that back that money back very easily uh, but it's not the sort of money you part with uh, willy-nilly so at the moment i'm i'm on sophie's dream author course enjoying that uh, consuming that it's very good value there's more content there that i can consume so uh, you know i'm saving a lot of that up and we'll come to it in the fullness of time but i do like sophie i like the way she talks she talks and teaches and I, I think she's sort of very very practical very matter of fact and of course it all comes from experience um, i've got to wait and see whether i get a place on it yet you know I, I might not even get a place on it yet um so i'll wait till march and then i'll make a decision and see how i feel and so the options then are university of east anglia you see the university of east anglia have a very good proven record of getting people published i haven't seen that yet on cambridge i, I want to wait to see what their record of getting people published is for that amount of money um, but my options are the university of east anglia course or the cambridge course at great expense or don't do a course at all. But what I like to do is I like to get these things lined up and then I'll see how I feel nearer the time and see how my own sort of writing and books and ideas are going. Um, but that's where we are with the university course. At the time of broadcasting this, uh, waiting to see if I get an offer from Cambridge and then I'll decide whether I'm gonna take a course up uh, next year. But um, in our longer term sort of travel plans, uh, we're thinking that we, we hope to go abroad uh, for sort of four to six months in my wife's 60th year and my 60th year, which is about 2024-2025. And it would mean that the course would be completed uh, by that date. Um, you know, so that it all kind of works. Uh, and and the, the remote bit where you're writing the book and just doing it online, um, depending on the dates, we would be abroad then, so I wouldn't be having to travel back very often. So it all kind of works domestically. I've got it all worked out domestically, but I still don't quite know what I'm going to do yet. If anything, I might not do anything. So again, if I do one of these bumper updates, um, I'll let you know what I know uh, if I do a bumper update in the future. Let's move on then to the writing that I'm doing, because that's what this podcast is all about. Have you done any writing, Paul? Well, <laughs> everything you've heard so far is is kind of by way of a, an explanation or an apology for the fact that, no, I haven't written anything yet, but I have just started. As of today, I'm 50,000 words into my first book of this year uh, and my first trilogy of this year. So let me tell you why that is. Now, you've, you've heard what I've been doing. There's absolutely no element of what I've been doing since I've published that last uh, book in the Morgan Bay series of me kind of sitting back and doing nothing with writing. It's just all been in the background. It's been about learning. It's been about marketing. Um, you know, it's been about applying, applying for courses. It's been about quality control. I have constantly been working on my writing business. 
since um, the end of January of this year. I've, and when I left you, I was going to write a trilogy of military sci-fi books, and I had planned out in chapter detail the the first book in that trilogy, and I planned the arc of the trilogy too. So I started writing that trilogy, and this is why I said I was in the wilderness. I just felt I'd write. I'd have bought the covers, if you remember rightly. I'd bought the covers as well at great expense. I've got lovely covers for it, or graphics, and I was writing it. And I just got a sense of, you know, I, what I'm really doing is I'm writing the same thing that I write, wrote for John and James. All I've done really is recreate characters because I can't use the characters that I created in, in the books I share with John and James. And I just thought I'm kind of rehashing what I did just so that I can, I can kind of write a military sci-fi and avoid writing in the world that I had with John and James. And it was at that point that I thought, you know, what I'd rather do is just get the books back from John and James, buy them back, adapt them so that they're out of their universe, which is, from my point of view, very easy to do, put some new covers on them, republish them under my name, and then write this series, you know, rather than me contorting the characters, just make them the same characters and apply the new adventure that I come up with with existing characters. So I've written a series. So I just thought, I just felt like I was rehashing the same thing. Um, and and I, what I really wanted was my my books back so I could just carry on that series because I was happy with those books. I liked the characters I'd created. So th that was the point at which I contacted John and James. I did some numbers and said, you know, can I buy them back? And we went through all of that. And um, uh, it's it's actually it's on the pending pile. It's not no forever, but it's no, it's no for now. And so I just felt with that, you know, I don't know whether I really want to write this series just strategically. It, it doesn't feel like the right thing for me to be writing, even though I'd planned the book, you know, I, if I'd have just sat there and written, and to be honest with you, talking to you now, I wish I had just carried on writing it, to be honest with you, because it was written, it was all planned. I, if I, all I had to do was turn up and do the writing, and I, I would have had a, you know, a trilogy done by now. So part of me wishes I had done that. But at the time, as I say, I was a bit in the wilderness, very unsure about what I was going to write. And I stopped writing it. And instead, I asked John and James, you know, we, we got into all the numbers and the haggling about whether I could buy those rights back for the, the books I'd written. And then I also contacted the guy who I'd bought the artwork for and said to him, look, um, when when I knew that John and James uh, were not prepared to release the rights to me, I thought, right, I'm not going to write this trilogy. And so I said to the, the artist, look, I'd spent over a thousand pounds on the covers. I said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to write these books. I know this is cheeky, but if I give you a commission, will you resell them? He said, yes. Uh, I gave him a commission. He wrote, he, he resold them. He managed to resell all those covers. And so I got most of my money back. So it was a case of nothing ventured, nothing gained. But I started that book and um, and, did, and didn't finish it. It's all planned. It's all sitting there. You know, it's, it's actually sitting there. The files are in uh, Living Writer right now. So I could pick it up whenever I want to. But at that time, I just thought, oh, I don't think this is the right thing at the moment. So it was a stalled project. So then I I went back to a thriller. I sort of felt guilty about not writing. I said, okay, let's go back to a thriller. And again, I planned another novel. It's called Courtfold Close. It was a standalone uh, psychological thriller. It's all planned out chapter by chapter. I've got the planning files. They're sitting in Living Writer. I've moved them ahead. Um, but, but again, I just thought, oh, you know, I'm just, what I'm doing is I'm writing more of the same. I just, I, I just feel like anything I was doing was writing more of the same and it wasn't moving me on. And so, started writing that and again I, I didn't continue with it it's a perfectly good book you know it's, it's ready to go but it just felt like it was more of the same that that's what I was doing I planned another book I had another idea um, whose working title is When Friends Kill 
I've got the file for that in Living Writer. It's, a, it's based around a, a, a reunion, a reunion of friends, a murder that takes place around a reunion of friends. And, and, and again, that didn't progress. And it all didn't progress because of, as I say, what I'm describing to you is this, this wilderness, this, this, you know, it's a combination of things that um, I'd lost my editor, you know, Julia died and that, that had thrown me because I was, I was out of routine. I'd finished a series, so whatever I was going to write next was going to be something new. It had to be something new. I've done standalone thrillers. I've done a series of thrillers. I've done a trilogy of thrillers. And, you know, this, I'll talk to you about sales right at the end of this. They're selling. That's fine. They're selling. Um, and, 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 you know, by many people's um, levels of, of, of income expectation, they're doing fine. But it's, it's, I just don't want to do more of the same. You know, I don't, I don't want to be the, the, the crazy person who keeps doing the same old thing and gets the same old results. I want um, different results. And that's why I was in the wilderness, just not sure what was going to happen. So then I thought, well, OK, you know, I'll be starting a course in September. It doesn't matter very much. I'll get my impetus from around the course. I don't want to get too stuck in anything because I don't know how much work I'm going to be doing on the course. So when I knew I had the course coming, that didn't worry me too much. But when the course was cancelled and then I subsequently found out that I got a course at the University of East Anglia but it wasn't for this academic year that got me thinking you know, I really need to be writing I wish I'd just continued writing because by now if I just shut up and written I didn't even have to publish the thing at least I'd have something written even if I didn't publish it it would be written so um, you know a certain amount of, of fr frustration there and it's it's not been writer's block so as, as you can hear you know the ideas have been coming thick and fast the books are all planned and ready to go it's not writer's block it's more a block about what comes next to be meaningful what's going to move the needle I don't I just don't want to do more of the same so anyhow when I knew that I'd uh, sort of finalized that I got the place at the University of East Anglia uh, from September 2023 that then gave me a time scale I knew how much time I'd got and I sat down and thought about it and what I decided to do is to write a trilogy that comes out of the Morecambe Bay trilogy. So there is a character in there, um, Detective Chief Inspector Kate Summers. She first appears in the Don't Tell Meg trilogy as a side character. She reappears in the Morecambe Bay trilogy, uh, and she's essentially a secondary character, but in the second trilogy, she has a pretty big plot line. It, it all centers around something that happens to her uh, and her friendship with the protagonist. Uh, and so what I thought was, okay, I don't want to write any more Walker Bay. I'm done with that series. I've done nine parts. I had been thinking a lot about setting a series in Hull, which is where I used to live when I was doing journalism. So I know that area really well. We'd been to Hull on a holiday in the summer um, and I'd sort of you know, used it to remind myself of the environment and, and what was available there. And so I decided that I would, I, I, in the, at the very last chapter in my Walker Bay series, I move... Um, Kate Summers I move her to Hull I say oh, I'm just about to do a transfer and that's just me setting up a new series of books so I, I, I always set up, I always leave things that I can do a new series of books if I need to and of course from a business point of view it always makes sense to use the same characters you know rather than me invent a new character it makes more sense for me to develop an existing character because then I bring along readers from um, Don't Tell Megan I bring readers along from Walk and Bay series that's something I've learned in all these years of writing to have links with the books so I decided to write a trilogy on Kate Summers and she's based 
based in Hull now and that's an area where I was a journalist I was mainly a presenter um, for seven years but you know while I was there I used to talk to I used to talk to the chief constable I used to get on very well with the chief constable there but I used to talk to all the movers and shakers in Hull uh, at that time I know the city really well because I was recording and interviews with people so it's a really good sensible place for me to base a series because I know it so well um, so I started writing that trilogy it's all planned book one is all planned uh, it, I started writing it on the 20th of, of September and as of today I'm up to 50,000 words of that book so it's gonna it's gonna work it's gonna be fine I'm writing this book uh, inspired by the living writer software I've put the framework around the 27 chapter method that they use for writing books now this book is going to be it has a prologue and an epilogue and it's going to be 44 45 chapters um, 75,000 words, roughly one and a half thousand words per chapter, give or take a few. So you know what I'm like when I, you know, I keep everything even. I don't want uneven chapters. I like it all even, predictable, um, so that it's easy to read, easy to, you know, hard to put down, easy to read. Um, you don't get caught up in a, a chapter that's 5,000 words. You know, I want, uh, I, I write books the way I like to read them in that um, I want to pick it up, uh, you know, read a chapter and then um, be able to put it down if I want to. But but hopefully the plot's so compelling that you, you can't put it down. So I'm using all the same sort of tricks that I've used in the other books using the same character and I've even got her sort of on the phone I'm even bringing her daughter into this book because I really want to have a strong crossover element with the books but effectively my plan is that this picks up from that character at the end of the Walker Bay series she's in a new environment a new city this will be a trilogy of books with one adventure in and then if I decide to carry it on I will carry it on with standalones of 90,000 words and each standalone will be a self-contained adventure and you'll be able to pick up those adventures and read them in isolation if you want to they're always obviously better read in context but I want to my Morecambe Bay trilogy for instance my Morecambe Bay series you kind of need to read those in order and if I work on another series now I want to start it with a trilogy because trilogies are dead easy to to market they're very easy to market a trilogy rather than a standalone and they pull people into the world but then i want to market and sell standalone books that feed into the same sort of character so that's the plan with those books so the plan for this year is to write um th that first trilogy and that should take me to roughly I'm going to go quite easy with it. I'm giving myself uh, three months per per trilogy, so I'm not not rushing with this. I've set a beautifully a beautiful kind of time scale. I'm pretty well writing two days a week, uh, three chapters a day, so about five about four and a half thousand words on a writing day, two days a week I'm writing, and then you know I'm having fun uh, and doing my university work and the rest of the time. I said to you some time ago that I worked out that I don't want to write every day of the week, so that's really suited me doing that kind of pace of writing two to three days of writing a week um, and then I'm not going to publish those books I'm in no rush to publish them at all um, I've, I've got the, the published dates of September the 4th October the 2nd November the 6th December the 4th in 2023 which will give me loads of time to get them edited you know beta read tidied up covers done put them on pre-order I don't want to be in the same situation as I've been in the past where I'm planning one editing another writing another it just you know blows my mind I'm, I'm pacing it a lot better now um, and, and my rough kind of guide is that um, you know four books a year um, is a really nice number to write it's way more than a traditional author would write it's still a lot of books but it's a very very comfortable 
uh, pace for me to write. That's roughly what I'm working to now as I, as I move forward. So I've also, as part of the uh, Cambridge University application, I had to uh, pitch pitch a book basically. Now it doesn't have this doesn't have to be the book that I write as part of my course, but they just basically want to see that you can you know you can plan a book. You've got a concept for a book. You know what you're going to have to work on to research. Um, they just want to see that you could you're, you're up to it, I guess. Now obviously I've got forty books behind me, so they they would know that. But I I I, I want to write. Uh, for I hope traditional publishing, what I'd like to sort of pitch around to agents as a result of doing a course, if I do it, I'd like to pitch a sort of more high concept crime thriller. And I, I've got the title, which is called Glimpse. And it's uh, basically, it's a completely serious crime novel that's based around time travel. I think I've probably said this to you before, I've wanted to do a time travel book for a long time. Um, so I, I've kind of pitched this book for Cambridge. And what I thought I would do is if, when I finish writing this uh, trilogy, uh, which will be about June, I think, June, 2023, over the summer and before I start the course, I will write the first draft of Glimpse so that when I start a master's course, if I start a master's course, I will have a first draft of the book that I will use for workshopping with all the students there, you know, when to, 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 to get critiqued, you know, for them to keep throwing it back at me, more description, bad dialogue, you know, boring pace, all this sort of stuff to really super hyper edit and work on a book. And, and I said, it might not be that book, but um, I, I thought what I want to do, if I start one of these courses next year, I thought I'd save the launches up so that I was launching my new trilogy as a new student on a course, because I think that will be interesting to be discussing in the context of the course. That's why I've chosen September the 4th as my first launch day. And I can sort of talk to other students and colleagues about that process and how it's working for me, but also to have the first draft of the book written and, and I would expect, you know, over the two years to workshop, improve, maybe even abandon that and start again. Uh, but I wanted to have something in the pot to start with. Um, so that's where I am with writing at the moment. Now, when I mentioned in the travel section that this book set in Hull, uh, we went to Hull earlier in the year. But to be honest with you, because the kids came, it just ended up being a good fun holiday. We just had a lot of um, you know fun and did a lot of kind of tourism and fun things. I didn't really use it as a research trip. So my wife and I are going to go back uh, April or May time. We'll coincide it with a park run and a ferry trip. And um, I want to take loads of photos of the settings that I've actually used just to make sure I've got all the detail correct. So um, that's what that trip's all about. Now, of course, the other problem with all of this was is I had an editor and I no longer have an editor. Well, I do now have an editor uh, who I'm using for this uh, this trilogy. Um, so I have uh, commissioned John Cronshaw's wife, Claire, as the new editor for this uh, series. Now, uh, again, at the moment, Claire's just commissioned for the one book. I thought, let's just get the one book written first. Let's make sure I can still do it and that this has got wings. And then um, at the point at which I've got the first book uh, written and ready to submit, um, if I sort of feel that it's fine and I'm going to get the next two written, then I'll talk to Claire and we'll get a commission for the next two. But I just wanted to keep the powder dry with that. Um, so Claire, I, I went to see John in the summer. We had a very nice afternoon sitting out uh, in the garden, uh, eating chocky biscuits and, and having drinks and chatting. And I met Claire then and we were talking about writing and editing and things like that. 
Claire seemed to be, I think, the next obvious choice, um, you know, to, to ask somebody to edit the books for me because she is completely embroiled in the world of indie authors. You know, her husband is an indie author. She knows how we work. Uh, she, she knows how fast we often need to turn this stuff around. Um, you know, she, she knows the deal with indie authors. She's sympathetic to what we do. Um, Claire, interestingly, um, when when we did the contracts, I, I sent a note to her and said, it's the best contract I've seen for, from an editor. She's got a really good contract. It's just very, it's exactly the way I, I learned to do things with contracts when I made websites and that you kind of tied down all the details. It's a very good contract. Um, if you want to check Claire out, she's at cherryedits.com. Now, we haven't worked together yet. When you work with a new editor, I always think it's it's kind of like a getting to know you exercise on both sides. You know, she will be horrified by the mistakes that I make. And, uh, you know, obviously she's got to then feed back to me and I've got to like the way that she feeds back to me. We have to learn to work together. So um, it's very much in that getting to know you phase uh, at the moment. Uh, but I've commissioned Claire, uh, you know, to do that first book and would you know, if I continue with the series, would com commission her or ask her if she's not cheesed off with me and all my mistakes to look at books two and three. Um, so I have now uh, kind of bitten that bullet and committed to a new editor. And as I say, you can check Claire out at cherryedits.com if you're also in the market for a sort of indie author's uh, editor. So 50,000 words. I've got a concept, I know where I'm going, I've got the plan for the books, it's a new setting, I'm enjoying it, the book's going well. I've got the release date set, now the book's going to be ready well before the release dates, but I don't care about that because I'm stage managing uh, these books. I want to release them when I'm on the course, I want to take my time with them, you know, I don't want, I don't want to frazzle myself because I don't have to anymore. Um, and the other thing which I'll talk to you about with the finance section is the great thing is, is I've now got such a back catalogue that those books are earning money for me so I'm quite happy to wait to release those books because you know obviously the more books you've got the more income you get from different sources but my back catalogue is fine for earnings at the moment there's no rush for me to get those books out so I'm going to kind of release them at a time of my choosing uh, you know rather than rushing them out as I might have done in the past. Over the years, I've used all sorts of tools to write my books, starting out with Microsoft Word, moving on to Google Docs and then Scrivener, and then seeking something that worked better in the cloud so that it would be more suitable for when I'm traveling. I've tried Reads' free writing tool, which I like a lot, and I was an early purchaser of Dave Chesson's Atticus, but neither of those products was quite what I was looking for. Then I heard about Living Writer on Jerry Evanoff's podcast. I took it out for a spin and I immediately loved it, taking out a one-year subscription. Living Writer is a flexible writing and planning tool. You can do everything you need to as an author. I could jot down all my plans, character and setting notes, and I could manage versions of my books all in one place with cloud backups and even a phone app available. I love the range of storytelling templates on offer, the integration with Canva to add covers to your books, and the amazing and varied export options that are available. There's only one thing I don't like, and that is the lack of curly quotes, but I've been nagging via the feature request facility to get that put right, and I'm assured it'll be sorted by the end of the year. So, although it's not yet quite perfect, it's pretty close to it, and I'm not hearing anybody talk about it on any of the other podcasts. So, take Living Writer out for a free spin and decide for yourself. You can check it out via my referral link at paulteague.net slash LR. 
Use it for 14 days risk-free. And remember, you don't pay anything extra if you buy via that link. I just receive a small commission for the referral. You'll find it at paulteague.net slash LR. In my opinion, it's currently the best writing and planning tool on the block. I did say this was going to be a long episode. I think we're going to break two hours. I don't think we've ever done that before. So um, we're at the end now. And in the last two sections, I'm going to discuss my kind of running news. And I always discuss my running news because this is all about the healthy author. It's about balancing life. Uh, It's also where I get a lot of my inspiration from because I've built my running into travel, but it's very much how I keep fit. Uh, I'm running four days a week, twice on the treadmill in the garage and uh, one at a park run and I go to a nature reserve every week and I'm doing uh, one 10K run every month. So it's really important to me to keep the running up, but this is about, uh, you know, good, good mental health, managing stress levels, making sure that I'm not writing all the time, staying healthy while I write. So that's why I include the running news, but I drop that at the end. Interestingly, um, I know from conversations with a couple of you that um, it's inspired you to take up running yourself. I know a couple of people who are now doing part run as a result of um, listening to this and, and sort of, you know, running themselves. So that's great. If it's inspired a couple of other people to run, that's great news. So, I've been doing loads of running um, since we last spoke. It is really part of my life now. And I actually think I started running. I don't think I was running when I started this podcast years ago. So you've kind of, you know, heard everything if you've been listening to this podcast for years. And um, my wife now, um, I probably mentioned this last time, I managed to get her out uh, running when we were in lockdown, when we were doing the exercise, got her to do 5K, got her to run 5K without stopping, managed to tempt her along to a couple of part runs but she's now been caught by the bug and on Saturday in fact today she's just received her t-shirt marking the fact that she's done 50 part runs so that's actually changed the way I do my part run now because um, now my wife comes with me we're bolting part run into the travel that we do and part runs just become a great excuse to say well let's go there we'll stay at a hotel overnight we'll look around the area uh, we'll go into a part run and um, you know turn it into a into a break so this year been all over the place. We've done park runs at Fort William, at the River Ancone, which is near where my mum lives, uh, Chester, which is where I had kids at university, uh, Kilmarnock, where we've got friends, Hamburg, we did one, uh, uh, the Humber Bridge, where we were staying in Hull, Normanby Hall, which is near the Humber Bridge, where I was staying with my mum. Uh, I was up at a different conference in Edinburgh, and I went to do the Holyrood part run the other day. We've been to Keswick in the Lake District. We did one in Copenhagen. I did one in Scunthorpe the other week. Uh, plus, since last December, I've done a 10-kilometre race uh, every month, uh, usually in Cumbria. But when I was visiting my mum the other month, I did a 10-kilometre race in Lincoln, which was beautiful because the, the race finished around the cathedral. And for the park runs, most of the time when she's able to travel with me, my wife's coming with me. So this thing that I used to do um, on my own has now become, you know, wonderfully sociable. And we're both caught up in that. And as a as a kind of retirement uh, activity, it's really, and it's great. And it's really great that we can uh, do that together rather than be going off alone as I, as I used to do it. So uh, this year, I've... I'm going to have I'm going to have done 50 park runs so that's one every week for this year I don't think I've missed one at all this week my volunteer ratio is 50% which means that um, uh, for every park run that I've done I've done uh, for every other park run I do I've done a volunteer so it's quite important to me to volunteer because it keeps the whole thing going I've done 10 different volunteer roles now I've, I, I, I'm aiming to have 
volunteered at 10 different uh, tourist locations and by the end of 2023 I'm hoping to get five foreign uh, park runs in. So you can see how this is sort of turned into a kind of passion stroke obsession uh, but it's a it's a lovely kind of healthy uh, passion and obsession it's one that I could do uh, with my wife but also we're fitting it in around our domestic and foreign travel now so uh, you know it's a real kind of treat because the park runs are usually based somewhere wonderful so for instance Kilmarnock I've, I've traveled through for years and I just thought it was a, a Scottish town uh, just a regular town but when we did the park run in in Kilmarnock not only did we get our friend to join us for it which was which was fabulous um, we gave him a taste of park run and he liked it uh, and he hadn't run in his life before um, but also we got to see a park in Kilmarnock that I didn't know even know existed it was a beautiful park so so when you do these park runs you, you're often being exposed to places that you don't know in cities and towns that are fabulous so that you'd miss if you if you didn't do the park runs um, so we're getting a lot of that it's feed, you know it's feeding a lot of that and the other thing about running is I often work out my plots when I'm running I I kind of go into this running zone and and that's where I mull over my plots and I'm quite happy jogging along looking at the scenery and I get a lot of ideas from running too so I mentioned the running news and we'll continue to mention the running news one because um, I know that it's inspired a couple of you to give it a try and you've stuck at it and that's fantastic but two because it's part of this concept of the healthy author that we can't just sit there typing all day uh, we need to have some form of exercise and activity in our lives and this is just actually the one that has suited me it's uh, it's worked great great for me and it's now also brought my wife and uh, a couple of listeners to this podcast along the way so this is where i'm up to you know where i am now i'm writing again i got a plan I may be doing an MA next year. I never stopped being involved in writing. I've done loads and loads and loads. You know, as I say to you, there's not a day when I don't do some work around my writing business. But the truth of it is with 40 books and with these Facebook ads going, I'm earning, I'm not earning as much as I'd like to, but I'm earning enough. My author business is earning enough money to pay for everything that I need to pay for. So I'm not, I'm not ecstatic at my author career. And I'm not earning anywhere near what I was when I had that wonderful, was it £16,000 plus month uh, during COVID. But I'm earning enough. I've got enough coming in from my author career. So let me give you some numbers. And I would place myself, I would describe myself, and this isn't putting myself down, but I'm a, a mid-weight, mediocre author. So, you know, I'm doing okay. Uh, I sell a few books. I'm not a great writer. I could be much better as a writer. I, I, I'm mediocre. I'm not a household name. You know, I don't have thousands of baying fans ready to, to buy my books. I, I generally need to sell my books through advertising. If I stopped advertising, I wouldn't sell books. There'd be no sense that, you know, people would be waiting for the next Paul T book to come out. So I would describe myself, and, I, and I'm not describing myself to put myself down like this. I'm, I'm describing myself to be realistic. I'm a mediocre midway author. I'm probably doing okay. So let me put some numbers on that. I'm now earning a steady and reliable £2,000 per month just from Amazon. So I have little bits coming in every month now from Ingram Spark, from Drafter Digital, from Kobo, uh, Publish Drive I get checks from. Uh, I'm going to have one from Smashwords, only a small one this month. But I got little, you know, got cash coming in all over the place. But Amazon is my number one earner. And um, I have £2,000 a month coming in from Amazon. Now, if you've listened to this podcast since the early days, you'll know that I I used to have that. I think my target was about 400 a month, something like that. Um, you know, so it's well exceeded that. And I think I think a lot of people would be happy 
would be happy with that. I'm content with that, but clearly I want to do I want to do much better. But but it's okay. That that amount of money pays everything I need to um, in in my business. Um, and it's 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 going to pay for an MA course. It might have to pay for a very expensive MA course as well. So it's it's capable of doing some mediocre things, um, and I'm not unhappy with it. Uh, and it's it, it's settled at that level now. That's that's where it's settled. You know, after the excitement of all the COVID stuff, it's settled at a very regular uh, level there. Now, uh, my all-time earnings from my books from when I started, I've now earned from my books. One hundred and forty-one thousand two hundred eighty-six pounds and forty-two pence. Uh, that was from two days ago, and that's what Amazon tells me when I go into Amazon and I say, "Tell me what I've earned all time." That's the number. So that's one hundred and forty-one thousand pounds two hundred eighty-six pounds forty-two. That is made up of twenty-two million nine hundred twenty-five thousand. 636 page reads. I'll repeat that for you because even I have trouble reading that number. 22,925,636 page reads. That's on Amazon. It's also made up of 99,504 paid for sales. Paid for sales. So I, I've done about three or four times that in freebie giveaways, but sales where I've actually been paid for we'll reach 100,000 paid sales by the end of this year. Now, you know, I know because I talk to a lot of authors that that's far from being the best numbers, but they're also far from being the worst numbers. Those numbers are probably okay. And I have to say to you, you know, when I look at that 141,000 as, as total earnings from Amazon, remember you've got, other, you've got other earnings to add to that too. I don't know I, they probably wouldn't be a huge amount, but you could probably round that up very safely to 150,000, very safely to 150,000, maybe even as much as 160,000. Um, since 2015, seven years, you know, that's not, that's not terrible, is it? It's not, it's not terrible. When you think that that reflects three years, four years when I would be earning nothing, and you know, really only three years when I would be earning something that would really start to make me um, you know, happy that you would say was a reasonable amount. So I just wanted to give you those numbers, um, you know, in fairness and for balance, because I told you about the stunning numbers where we'd had the 16 sort of thousand pound month, the really high months. Those, I couldn't sustain those. I can't sustain those. Uh, um, and obviously, if I can find a way to make that happen again, I will. It's why I'm doing Amazon ads. It's why I'm constantly learning, you know, constantly trying to find a way to do that. I won't stop trying to find a way to get those numbers back up again. Uh, but I have to say that, you know, having settled now, you know, £2,000 a month, a very safe £2,000 a month is, is, is fine. That's, I, I feel comfortable with that. It's enough to very comfortably run the business. And if I want to take money out, I can take money out. But at the moment, I'm not taking money out. That money is just kind of going on a, an MA pile and I'm budgeting it against edits and expenses and things like that. So... 2020 to 2021 remains my biggest single year as an author. I earned more gross in that year from Amazon than I did in any year in my working life. That was the COVID year. I had a really, really good year that year. Um, and it was a very good earnings year. And obviously it's responsible for a lot of those page reads and it's responsible for a lot of that £141,000 of income. Uh, just to give you an idea of what those levels of earnings mean, at the current moment in time, uh, you, uh, I've budgeted over till September 2024. And up to 2024 in September, 
all my expenses are paid for. So I've put money by for my edits in that time, my book covers. I've got all recurring softwares there. My accounting is budgeted. I've got my tax put aside, the tax that I know that I owe. I edit as I go along. I'm using a piece of software now called Free Agent, which always gives me the number, so I'm always putting it by. Plus I have the course fees for the, which is about 10 and a half thousand pounds. I have that sitting in that bank account for the University of East Anglia master's course, if that's the one I do, but I don't have the 21,000 pounds yet for the Cambridge master's course. So that just gives you an idea of, of where that, what that level of money gives me. Now, for instance, if I didn't, um, when we were in Spain, I was taking out a salary. Uh, when we were in Spain, I took a salary out for my wife. When we came back from Spain and my wife started working uh, back at her job again, I took myself a salary out and then I stopped paying myself a salary when I went to work at the university. So um, that master's money, if I decided not to do the master's, I'd probably take it out as either dividends or a salary. So again, if I wanted, if I needed to take a salary out of the business, I could take a salary out of the business. But at the moment, um, I, I don't need to take a salary out of the business. I'm happy to, uh, to put that money towards an MA to improve my craft, to hopefully improve my overall earnings. That's where I'm kind of going with that. And the other thing to tell you with those numbers is that for, for the past three months or so, I've been thrashing Amazon ads at a financial loss. So I've been, I always make money from Facebook ads. They're always, they always work well for me, but those profits are, are, are subsidizing the Amazon ads. Now I have individual ads that are doing well and then I'm ramping up, I'm increasing budgets on, but across the board at the moment, while I'm learning to do Amazon ads, I've just written off the need to make profit. I've, I, give, I gave myself about five months and said, you don't need to make any money in those five months at all. No profit. Profit, uh, or any profit you make could go to subsidize, frankly, wild experimentation with adverts. So I'm just I'm burning it up on wild experimentation with adverts. Now, clearly, I can't do that forever. I've, I've set myself a limit. I think I've got the end of this month and next month, and then I've really got to apply myself to, um, you know, working out how to make those ads work, to working through the rest of the training in the Amazon Ads Academy uh, that teach you how to monitor those ads and change them. Um, but for the last five months, I haven't, uh, four or five months, however many months it is, I cut myself some slack and said, you've got enough money in the account. You've got all these bills paid until 2024. Now put your money where your mouth is. Let's really try and learn and master Amazon ads. And you can't do that without spending, uh, spending some cash. And so I've been throwing money at it, understanding that I'm going to have to make losses while I'm learning because I need to generate traffic. I need to get numbers I could look at, but I'm happy to do that because I'm really determined to get to grips with Amazon ads. Really am determined to do that. So um, I think um, I think I won't be taking any money out or uh, making any profit uh, unless it's by accident. I won't be making, I, I am kind of making profit, but, but not much. Um, I won't be doing that until uh, I'll forget that to the end of December. And then in January, I'll, I'll want to start taking profit again and start accruing some money. For instance, uh, I want to put some money towards this Cambridge Masters. If I decide to do that, I need to start accruing that over a period of two years um, because of when the bills become due. So, um, you know, it's all being run uh, like a business. I am still a limited company. I am still pushing. And the, the other thing I would say about my income level is you've heard how many courses I've bought this year, you know, Sophie's course, the Amazon ads course. What it's allowed me to do is just to spend very freely on courses and learning, um, you know, to, to, to just I've just been spending on trying to improve the business and to move it on. 
because I really just don't want to stay still. I really want to up my game. And that means marketing. I need to become a better marketer. I need to become better at craft as well. And those are the two um, constant pain points that I've had. And I really want to move those on. Okay, that was a really, really long one. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you've got some great information about it. I know I've been thinking for the last couple of months now, there's so many things I want to share with you and let you know. As I said, uh, you know, I would be lying if I hadn't considered coming back to the podcast. I think that at a personal level, I just really need to feel that I'm back in the game, you know, writing regularly again, that I'm not going to start a podcast and then think, oh, I wish, wish I hadn't started. I, I just need to feel like I'm back in the zone with the writing again. And, and clearly, as I move through this trilogy, and clearly as I become more focused about whether I'm going to do the MA or not, um, that's going to clarify my thinking. So for instance, if I commit to doing the MA over two years, that's that would be a really good time for me to come back to the podcast because I'm going to have loads of updates for you. I'm going to have lots of new stuff to share with you as part of that course. So, you know, I haven't I haven't ruled that out at the moment, but I think it's been a funny old time because I've been listening to, to Jerry and uh, Rich. Uh, I, lo I love listening to the podcast. I've had a lot of value um, out of that because it's two writers, you know, just doing what I do, really discussing what they're up to, sharing tools. And I've just come to appreciate how much I, I just value listening to other authors chatting honestly about what they're doing and sort of thinking, looking in at my own podcast, thinking, well, that's probably what people will get from me. Lucy Branch, where we went for our drink, described it beautifully. She, When I said to Lucy, I was thinking of perhaps bringing the podcast back. And she said, well, the reason I like listening to the podcast is because it's like the hero's journey in one of the books that we write. You know, we're kind of listening. I'm the protagonist and you're listening to me, you know, with all my trials and, and the blows that hit you and, you know, and your occasional successes. It's a bit like the hero's journey. I thought, you know, that's a really good way of describing it, really. But it's often difficult to perceive yourself that way. It's much easier to observe others and make that observation about others, as I do when I'm listening to Jerry. And when I'm listening to Rich, also I listen to John Cronshaw's podcast every week. You know, they're doing these podcasts day in, day out, and they're just talking about their author life. And I get tremendous value out of that, just listening to what they're up to and what they're doing. You know, whether it's success or, or a failure, I just learn from everything. And the, the final thing that tipped me over the edge was listening to the Six Figure Authors. And I mean, it's, it's, it was almost, almost painful to hear Joe Lalo um, admit that he was having to go back to work because his author earnings were down. And to be honest with you, you know, I was a little bit embarrassed about my earnings uh, reducing since that, that the heady days of those 16,000, a little bit of embarrassment about that, which is why I forced myself to tell you my numbers, chapter and verse today, uh, you know, to confront my pain point. But, um, you know, there is a lot of value in hearing that and to hear that Joe's having to go back to work. It just gives a much more honest portrayal of the different journeys that we all have as authors because you know what i can tell you with a reasonable amount of confidence is that you might have amazing peaks like i did at sixteen thousand, but it's it's very hard to to maintain those peaks over a lot of time you tend to have peaks and troughs and have to even those out and as ever with this podcast i'm keen to for you to know you know the good the bad and the ugly and um you know as i say i've, I've reached you know a reasonable level of success i'm not unhappy with it but it's not the level of success that i want and i really want to to up my game if i can so that's a long way of me saying that there may be 
future podcast episodes. It's more likely in the first instance to be another bumper episode like this, you know, probably when I'm further along with the trilogy. But as we move towards the MAs and things like that, if I commit to the MA, then I can see that it might make a lot of sense for me to, to you know, to come back and start doing the podcast again and talk to you about all the work I'm doing as part of that course as an author, because I just feel like I'd be sharing some different stuff with you. So I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, I hope you still uh, had the feed subscribed to in your podcast catcher. Keep it there because you never know when I might pop up once again. I'm certainly more disposed to do it now than I was when I spoke to you last January. That's it for the special show. Thank you very much for listening. And of course, as ever, I hope that your own writing is going great. From me, Paul Teague, it's bye-bye for now.